Good morning and welcome. This is Storm of Swords, part 12, Scraps and Scrolls, the companion podcast to the giants of history of Westeros. I am Sir Buckley. Welcome. I'm talking to you from a very, very sunny England. Summer is in the air. And you know, I like that solar energy. I lap it up. So keep that coming, please, weather gods. Yes, as I say, these are the Scraps and Scrolls of History of Westeros's Valar Rereaders project. So make sure you are following Aziz and Ashea, as I'm sure you really are, joining in on the live streams on Sundays. They have heaps more content coming out left, right and centre. So try and keep up if you can. I know it's pretty tough, but the content is always supreme. So please give them your attention and thanks as well. Speaking of thanks, you have mine, my extreme gratitude, as always, for listening, for joining me here on the Isle of Faces, my fellow green folk, for downloading or sharing or whatever it might be. This is your podcast, of course, don't forget that. And also don't hesitate to get in touch with questions, suggestions, concerns. Just say hello. I enjoy that as well. You can tweet at me. You can send an email, Podcast at gmail.com. You might even be kind enough to give us a rating, maybe even write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you find us. That is always very much appreciated. And if you'd like to help support the podcast and continue to help us improve and grow, you can find some extras and benefits at patreon.com slash Faces. And speaking of, of course, let me thank all our loyal patrons, but especially would like to mention Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse and Archmaester June, the healer of lesser poxes. You are always very much appreciated. And this week I'd also like to thank another loyal patron. She's at Vdakasini. And I just want to say thank you for some invaluable feedback she provided this week. That is also very much appreciated, as well as your long-standing patronage, of course. And for just all around being awesome, we love you. On the topic of Patreon, there are some additional benefits and changes coming to the tiers and stuff. Don't worry, no one's losing anything. People are all gaining, so no changes there for current patrons. We're going to have some more specific goals and stuff we want to aim for to improve the podcast. Yeah, just some extra stuff we can add, stuff we can work to together. But do keep an eye out for those. And as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, I have these ideas for bonus episodes, more Patreon-only episodes I want to do. I'm really kind of overflowing of ideas. I have to kind of stop myself because I do have other things to do sometimes. I do have like a novel to write and sometimes I even sleep and eat. So I have to just pump the brakes and not do all these podcasts all at once. But they are coming and uh, I'm very keen to get those done. So you'll be seeing some of those as well. But again, send in your ideas and requests, please. Now, I know this is a tough time for us all. So I hope you're all doing okay during lockdown or self-quarantine or whatever it is you might call it. As always, we hope to provide some distraction some activity for your brain and hopefully some enjoyment as well. And again, if you need more of that, contact me via Twitter, send the email, islefacespodcast.gmail.com. We're happy to talk to you. If you are struggling anyway, you can always reach out to me, to others in the fandom, to professional services. Don't suffer in silence because, uh, like I said before, this is a, a team game. We'll never win going one-on-one. We're going to have to do a zone press on this thing and we'll get through. Now, what's been happening on the R lately before we get going here? Not too many things on the notice board, just a couple. Last week, yes, we had the very difficult Red Wedding episode. Okay, sure, that was tough, but we also cheered ourselves up with a new Sporkle Spectacular. This time, it was Clash of Kings, the opening sentences, and we were very, very lucky to have Lauren, aka Shakes of Thrones, back on the aisle, one of our favourite Isle of Faces alumni. This episode was amazingly fun to record, I think you'll be able to tell that when you listen. Lauren is such a great guest, someone wonderful to talk to. A hell of a quiz player, it turns out as well. And I hope you've all had the chance to listen to the episode and have a go at the quiz as well. It is definitely a toughie. I won't spoil our final scores for you, but we did both manage to get past the average score in the end. And thank you for everyone who has been sending in their scores. It's always good to interact with you that way. Anyway, like I said, I promise you'll have lots of fun listening to it. You might even want to check out Lauren's guest episode from last July because she's amazing on that as well. 
Now, no Sporkle Spectacular this week, like I mentioned. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. We're just allowing for some guest schedules to line up because we want to keep these guests on. So the next episode, Clash of Kings, closing sentences, will probably either be next week or the week after. It depends when I'm going to start slipping in some of these extra episodes. Don't worry, it is coming back. And yes, a final reminder, keep an eye out for that extra content and announcements coming soon. We are forever busy on this Isle of Faces. That's the way we like it. There's some very special stuff coming up that I'm very excited about. We'll be having some more shout outs and uh, community stuff during the halftime. But for now, to be honest with you, we had best get on because I know there are only four chapters this week and yet seems to be just as long as last week. This, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a longer episode. Longest ever episode last week. So I think it was one hour 45, something like that. Which makes sense for the Red Wedding. But yeah, this this might beat it. Another 20,000 words handed into History of Westeros. And obviously Aziz used some of my notes. So it's not quite that much here. But it's enough. So we should probably get going. Because after a week of fast-paced interconnected chapters. That all focus on one of the main central plots in the Riverlands and Rob. We get a rare collection of all the outlier POVs today. The rarities. Aside from John, of course. He's pretty regular. My George refused to give us any distraction last week about what had just happened to House Stark. Today, he will eventually come to give us plenty once we get past Davos' chapter. Like Bran, we first have to pass through a creepy gate of detailed updates about the Red Wedding aftermath. Specifically, the dishonour done, or supposedly done, to Rob and Catelyn's bodies, as if breaking the taboo of guest right isn't enough. From there, we will get a bit of a roundup of all that's been happening while our eyes have been so focused on the Riverlands, while also allowing the dust to settle in that blood-soaked region. After being so used to having Arya, Catelyn and Jaime chapters all based in that region, we now have Catelyn gone, Jaime is leaving for King's Landing, and Aya headed for the perimeter and soon to leave. So George has to give it some time for everything to somehow get even worse before the epilogue of this book and the return of Brienne and Jamie POVs in Feast. But when I say distraction, do I mean relaxation? A chance to breathe and finally have our hearts slow. No, no, no way. George is going the other way, delivering what is, to be honest, a pretty insane free chapter run. We have the first attack on Castle Black, which is one of my favourite battle chapters of chapters total ever. Bran arriving at the Night Fort, another clear favourite for me, even if for entirely different reasons. And finally, Daenerys completing her journey by arriving at Marine. And again, I'm just falling more and more in love with Daenerys every chapter we get her. I already loved her before, but she's just popping out to me on this reread and her ability and skill. Oh, I'll save that for later. Don't worry, there's more coming. But yeah, they don't get much bigger than that. That's a pretty good free chapter run I think you'll agree it's the kind of thing we should get used to for the ending of this book as the reasons for its acclaim become clearer and clearer there's really nothing comparable in the series to the ending of this book and this chunk is a prime example don't forget we had the red wedding last week we've got this insane free chapter run and Davos isn't a slouch either that's a good chapter also so good four chapters and then next week straight away purple wedding it's all go at the end of this book. It's really, ooh, yeah, we're on the roller coaster now. Let's thank George for giving us these chapters in a row because this is one fine way to get over the to get over post red red and gloom, which I certainly had enough of last week. Oh, Catelyn. We also see major moments of growth in all four of our POVs today. Major milestones in their lives. Even Davos at the beginning takes a forward step in his handship by taking on his reading lessons. Slightly larger than that are Jon, Bran, and Daenerys. Three characters some might say are the Triforce type key to humanity's salvation. And now I think about it, I like that analogy more and more. Bran is the Triforce of Wisdom, John is Courage, and Daenerys is Power. Yeah, I, I like that. They're going to have to make a, some kind of Zelda mod where we can play that. John takes a huge leap from boy to man as a large part of his wildlingness is severed forever. Bran passes from his homeland of Westeros into a realm of magic, and Daenerys finally arrives at the first place she will really linger, the first place she will stay to rule, with all the unforeseen troubles that are to come with it. 
If you'd like to join me down this nerdy rabbit hole, especially in terms of my semi-obsession with chapter sequencing, which will come up a lot today, trust me, I went and had a look at how often we get a John, Brand, Daenerys run of chapters, in whichever order. We have it once in Game of Thrones, not at all in Clash of Kings, twice in the Storm of Swords, both here and all three of their opening chapters, all first POVs are next to each other, obviously none in Feast of Crows because none of them are in it, and then twice again in A Dance of Dragons. Does it mean anything? I bloody doubt it, but it's still interesting to know either way, to me anyway. I think we can agree that these three are the more magical, more endgame focused POVs, even if in an overall sense for Daenerys, so I like to note it down. But yeah, that's enough of the overall, I think we can get going here, like I say, some big chapters. We have Davos 5, Jon 7, Bran 4 and Daenerys 5, with some halftime shoutouts and our funky music in the middle. So let's begin with Davos 5. So before we head to the outer limits of our story in Marine and the North, we first get a semi-outlier in Dragonstone, right there on the edge of the southern politics plot. And because it is out on this theoretical barrier, it makes sense that we receive the last of our initial wave of Red Redding aftermath or news before we begin tackling other issues. We've already seen the event framed in the eyes of a direct enemy and the Lannisters, so now we have to see it through a non-direct in Stannis and company. Or to put it another way, we've now seen the effect on all of the remaining five original kings. It's a final kick in the pants, a last stomach churner of news, before we get to question some of the higher mysteries surrounding the event, before returning to what it all means for Davos's continuing battle for Stannis's soul. Here's our first quote of the day. They swear Lord Frey had the boy's head hacked off, sewed the head of his direwolf in its place, and nailed a crown about his ears. His lady mother was slain as well, and thrown naked in the river, at a wedding, fought Davos, as he sat at the slayer's board, a guest beneath his roof. These frays are cursed. He could smell the burning blood again, and hear the leech hissing and spitting on the brazier's hot coals. So we waste no time in getting down to business, with Salador San returning to share the news of Stannis, and I adore that he receives word of Rob's death with the most Stannis reaction ever, by which I mean no reaction at all. It's the complete opposite of Joffrey's foolish and pathological excitement. Stannis is already staring down at his painted table, he's thinking more about what this means logistically to the war effort than any kind of personal victory or personal joy. Though I say Captain Justice's clenched jaw means he's also aware a huge crime has just been committed in quote-unquote his kingdom, one that will need to be dealt with at some later date, and that will cost some phrase more than a few finger bones. More importantly, we get to see the reaction of the common man, although Davos is far advanced beyond that tier now. Still, he's the closest we have for our POVs, and he's also at least semi-neutral. Yes, Rob Stark is technically the competition for his boss, but there's no particular malice there, and certainly not from Davos's end. He's going to look at the situation clearly and make a judgement. Given that so much of Davos's arc, in this book especially, is about being a moral compass to Stannis, he's a pretty good guy to judge how the news should be received. And he breaks it down pretty evenly. These people were murdered at a wedding. First moral strike. Gastroid was broken. Second moral strike. Hence, Davos arrives at the conclusion that most will from here on out. The phrase are cursed. It doesn't matter what they gained, what insult Robert done to them, what the situation was, what they did was wrong. It's some good setup for when Davos will cross with a few phrase in White Harbour, and he is obviously not a fan, not just because they are on the opposing side, but because they have essentially cheated at the game. For Davos, the thoughts of curses lead him back to his own conscience about what happened back with those leeches, as well as giving us a tasty reminder that, oh yeah, we've still got a king to cross off the list, we've only had two of the three. We'll return to that in a moment, but let's first address the heartbreak and sickness-inducing description of what's happened to Rob and Catelyn's bodies. There's some conjecture about how true this all is, especially in regards to Rob, but we'll come to discover the Catelyn part is absolutely true later on, so this is some important setup for Arya's involvement and Beric's final act later on. Speaking of curses and prophecies, the idea of Rob with a wolf's head has been established many times before, so that seems pretty on base as well. 
The question I find interesting is whether the head placed on Rob's corpse is a direwolf's or something else. That part we do not yet know. But that's really besides the point. What stings is this extra dishonour, this, this extra desecration of their bodies. It's really just bullying at this point. It's just mocking. And somehow it paints the phrase in an even worse light. You wouldn't think it could get any worse. The Redwood is clearly the biggest betrayal of the general social contract between the nobility ever. But this is a pretty big one too. How you treat others after death is of major importance in this kind of society and is going to greatly influence how others interact with you in the future. They didn't need to parade Rob around and they definitely didn't need to make a mockery of the Tully funeral rites. It's just evil at this point. It also fits within a theme of what happens to the Starks in general. Aside from the larger theme of betrayal, left, right and centre for all of them, Ned's whole thing in the opening paragraph of the series was about treating an enemy or a doomed man slash woman with honour. He beheads Garrod because that is the noble, honourable way to do it. Theon kicks Garrett's head for sure, but he's not stuck. Yet what has happened to all of them since? Bran and Rickon, in theory, that's the story, were flayed and then had their heads put upon the spikes of Winterfell's walls. Aya, most assume, is lying dead in a ditch somewhere. Catelyn and Rob have now suffered this, and we don't know specifically what will or has happened to Jon Snow's body at the end of Dance, though the show suggests that he's just left to bleed out in a yard. As for getting Ned himself, who at least got a beheading, but was also mounted upon a wall for Joffrey's amusement. It makes you wonder what Ares did with Rickard and Brandon after his great crime. Last time we saw Stannis, which seems like an age ago now, he was at least opening his mind a bit to a law, hence the leeches. But that was when he was still real bummed about the Blackwater. Now he's back at his painted table, and two of his major opponents have gone down for whatever reason. There's finally stuff to be thinking about. There's finally something he can be getting on with. Even if Rob and Balon's death don't provide immediate prizes, it's a lot better than the news he's had recently, and we can see him chomping at the bit to get his envoys out and making some kind of effect on the world again. Which just makes him all the more angry when Melisandre bursts his bubble to point out that the famous wheel was just going to keep on rolling, and this isn't really going to change anything. I suspect because she wants to back up her point about the leeches being a waste of time in comparison to Edric Storm. There's another quote. Lady Melisandre will tell you, my lord. Only death can pray for life. The boy, the king always spat the words. The boy, agreed the queen. The boy, Sir Axel echoed. After Melisandre admits she sometimes struggled to see the true message of her flames, <laughs> no duh, Melisandre, we see Stannis revert to being his grumpy old self, now his one ray of light has been extinguished. We get another reminder of Stannis' lack of assets and how frustrated he still is with his lot after the Battle of the Blackwater. It's an interesting time to take stock, given that we've just had Rob go down, despite his own situation being miles and miles better than Stannis's. Either way, Selyse passes off the dire situation by bringing up the idea of dragons. Stannis gives us a nice little bit of Targaryen history before we arrive at the point of the conversation and what has been clearly weighing on his soul to the point of ultimate frustration, Edric Storm. This repetition in that quote I just read is not only creepy in a cult-like way, but goes to show that Stannis is slowly being worn down. He's hearing this again and again from all angles, every day probably, and now it's cleverly being brought up when he's just learned his greatest victory in ages, the leeches, isn't even really a victory at all. The creepy cult feeling intensifies when everyone starts kneeling and trying to grab Stannis, Selyse especially. It's interesting that the two women go down differing routes on what Edric is worth. Selyse insists he is a curse on their marriage, something corrupt due to Robert's sin way back when. Melisandre goes the opposite, highlighting him as innocent and therefore more worthy when Stannis proclaims the son not guilty of his father's crimes. Interestingly, Stannis is actually fairly defensive of Robert here when he'd normally be a lot more grumpy about such. Possibly because this is just a marriage bed, something Stannis doesn't truly care about or see value in. There's no comparison to his held-on-to gripes about the ownership of Storm's End. But opposite approaches are not the only difference between these two women, as Davos notes their distinct physiques also. Stannis' possible attraction to Melisandre has been discussed many times, especially due to the show, but that's a larger discussion for another day. 
Even ignoring the physicality side of it, Mel just clearly has more charisma than Solis and has provided more worth as well, so it's no surprise who Stannis wants to talk to. Pretty, still fairly new lady with potential to help you, or literally grasping lady who is clearly fanatic and is also telling you to listen to the pretty lady. It's an easy choice, really. All of this, the letdown of the leeches, the unimproved situation of men and ships, and the constant bothering and nagging, leads Stannis to finally admit that yes, it would be so much easier to jump on a ladder and skip to square 100 with a dragon, stone or otherwise. This is so against the whole point of Stannis, everything that Stannis stands for. He's the image of grafting, of putting the work in, of really earning a crown instead of just cheating. So to hear him start drifting towards that line of thinking, especially given what it would take to actually get there, is what kicks Davos into gear. They firstly mention this famous line, no man is as cursed as the Kinslayer in the eyes of gods and men. I think that might just be slid in there by George to remind us of what Tyrion's got coming up later in this, in this book, but there's another quote on top of that, starting here with Melisandre. You have seen what even the little of that blood could do. I saw you burn some leeches, and two false kings are dead. Rob Stark was murdered by Lord Wald of the Crossing, and we have heard that Balon Greyjoy fell from a bridge. Who did your leeches kill? Davos takes us through a very real-world argument about proving the validity of miracles or divine intervention, and how difficult that can be against the truly zealous. It comes off as kind of a weak argument, especially for re-readers who know that Davos will soon be proven wrong, and it also seems like he's clutching at straws, because he kind of is, especially when he adds in his own memory of the Shadow Baby, and the fact he's arguing against something that he knows is real. At least in our world, or with some of the other religions in this scenario, there is no actual evidence of there being a higher power. With all the gods and mystical powers on Planetos, Davos and the reader really do have to start questioning what the leeches meant. But we as the readers, especially thanks to this reread, can see that the foundations of the king's deaths far predate the burning of the leeches. The Red Wedding, especially, has multiple factors going back a long, long, long time. So does Peter Baelish and Elena Tyrell's plotting for Joffrey, and we don't know it by this point, but we will come to learn the same of Euron Greyjoy. But Davos knows none of that. He keeps faith because he has to if he is to keep Stannis from falling into that side of things forever, and he knows what that will mean for the larger world as well as Edric. Yet, with all of that, we've also seen foreshadowing of these king's deaths prior to the leeches in the House of the Undying and, and other places also. So the debate about whether men or higher powers are pulling the strings, or if these higher powers just know what will come instead of controlling it, rolls on and on. Dragging ourselves out of that whirlpool, the point is Davos knows his king. The argument of logic is still enough to get through to Stannis, even if he unfortunately hints that Davos's reasoning, at best, is just buying time when he admits that even he could not deny three kings dying is more than coincidence. But essentially, Davos achieves his first goal of getting the trained crows, as Stannis calls them, out of Stannis's ear for a little while, opening up the runway for the Onion Knight to take his own turn as a crow when he bids for Edric's life again. Davos's croaks are another attempt at humanising Edric to Stannis and to play on the king's emotional heartstrings by involving Shireen. Stannis knows the decision needs to be made and knows time is running out to do it. I think that is why he so wanted the chance of sending out envoys and of having some other option to pursue to be real because the alternative is just back to wrestling with his soul about Edric again. If his ship continues to be stranded or becalmed in this sea of war, with Edric the only possible chance to gain some wind, how long can Stannis really delay? All of it leads us up to one of the best Stannis monologues of all, which I'll read the highlights of here. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says, the night that never ends. I never asked for this, no more than I asked to be king, yet dare I disregard her. He ground his teeth. We do not choose our destinies, yet we must, we must do our duty, no? The king moves, so his shadow fell upon King's Landing. If Joffrey should die, what is the life of one bastard boy against the kingdom? Everything, said Davos softly. Within these sentences we can see many of the key elements that make up who Stannis is as a character. 
Chief among them is the idea that he did not choose to have this decision thrust upon him. He did not choose to wield the power of life and death over everyone and everything, regardless of how he came to believe such was his destiny. We've discussed it at length before, but it really is Stannis' defining characteristic. He does not do this for glory or gain. He doesn't even do it for vengeance, as at least some part of Rob did. He does it for the duty, because he is supposed to. And I really do see why he gains so many fans in that respect. The weight of such a role is crushing him, is tearing him apart, and is incredibly philosophical in nature. So what is right here? Obviously it takes a huge leap of faith to believe Melisandre that potentially every living person is in mortal danger, but for whatever reasons, Stannis does believe and he has to choose. How can one person make that choice? Which all just relates it back to that ticking clock. How long can he put off saving the boys and girls that dwell in Restoros, hoping for some other option to finally appear, before he has to sacrifice himself in terms of soul, and absorb the biggest hit for the benefit of all others? So comes the famous line at the end of that quote, with Davos' famous reply. This time, the philosophical, intensely ethical question is asked directly, and Davos sticks to his guns. He maintains that the act in front of you, the care of your soul first, has to be foremost. The ends do not justify the means. And I think the word softly is key here as well. And I think as he's got to this note, but I'm going to include it anyway just because I quite like this one. Davos isn't arguing with Stannis. He doesn't think his king is evil for considering such. Davos knows the decision Stannis is wrestling with and sympathises with him, but he has taken a firm stance on the correct decision. Could we honestly do so? What I'm saying is I'm damn glad I'm not in Stannis' shoes as he's presented with the grandest trolley problem of them all. Although I do think he'd make a great cameo in The Good Place. That's why I had to include this note. I don't think any other scene makes me feel of him like this one does. And uh, yeah, by the by, go and watch The Good Place if you haven't already. Okay, we wave goodbye to Stannis there. Here's a quote from Davos leaving the, uh, the chamber of the painted table. Davos had often heard it that the wizards of Valeria did not cut and chisel as common masons did, but work stone with fire and magic as a potter might work clay. But now he wondered, what if they were real dragons, somehow turned to stone? So this quote follows on from an extended paragraph about the unique structure of dragonstone, the amazing building shapes and the incredibly clear motif of dragons. So you all know I studied this paragraph over and over again when writing the castles book, so I won't repeat myself here, but it is obviously quite timely considering all these ideas of stone dragons and whether they could possibly be real. So it's probable that this is just all extra pressure on Stannis. He literally can't escape his conundrum every time he looks out the window. Oh, there's another stone dragon. I should probably think about that again. What the paragraph does do is allow a quick reunion and healing of the friendship between Davos and his old friend Salador San, and that's ignoring another mention of the Kraken horn on Claw Isle, which still has me riveted in terms of the future. I can't get that horn and Claw Isle out of my head. The main purpose of this conversation is that Davos has started to branch out in terms of playing a political game. For the first time, he is now actively seeking out others so he can establish his own power base to combat his political adversaries in Axel Florent and the other Queensmen. It's quite the move for Davos, something we really haven't seen before, and it fits in well with this chapter's overall message of him very quickly advancing his handship skills. What I love most is Davos relating this recruitment back to his past, because although this side of him is new to us, we've really only seen him act in a Lone Ranger, quiet observer role who mainly interacts with Stannis, this has actually all been a major part of his life in the past. He's been a leader for years as a captain. Like he notes, knowing men and being able to choose them has been a skill that he's needed for a long time. We've only had a quick glimpse of such abilities during the Battle of the Blackwater, but they really are part of who Davos is. So him being able to transfer that across now to his handship is truly critical. And as we know from his next chapter, he chooses men who are both loyal and competent, and he's savvy enough to pick them because of their beliefs opposing the Queen's men. This is a skill we have really yet to see in a hand. Both Ned and Tyrion arrived in King's Landing with certain factions loyal to them from past endeavours, but neither were really able to recruit more loyal parties within the court. So we should be applauding Davos' political skill here. 
because of his past, because of his knowing men, he pulled off what two more famous hands could not, and considering this recruitment involves major, major political and possibly physical danger should it go wrong, the fact Delos is successful is even more amazing. I know, yes, Dragonstone is a slightly different arena to King's Landing, but I still say we give them a nod to Davos here. Something else quite important about this is Davos isn't really even seeking men for himself. He refers to them as King's men, not Hand's men, and it is ensured that they also have the end goal of seeing Stannis succeed. It's really quite brilliant, and we'll obviously be referring back to a lot of them when Davos's heist chapter comes up later. Just a very quick quote that's thrown in here from Saldor San. The Lysini laugh, a crew of no tongues is even better, big strong mutes who cannot read or write. Oh boy, here comes the Euron foreshadowing, I'm sure Aziz mentioned this as well. I wonder if this means Euron will come into contact with Salador San if he curls around Dawn and enters the narrow sea after he's done with Old Town. Could be a connection there. Especially if Salah can't get this Krakenhorn out of his mind, like I can't. Even within this conversation, the argument about how much help a stone dragon would be looms over everything, but we finally receive the news that Salador is returning to the narrow sea, which is important to remember but it's the last time we'll see him on page until the Dance of Dragons. From there, Davos moves on to another crucial part of his development, and perhaps the main point of the whole chapter, his learning to read, and especially how he approaches that with kind of, and how he approaches that with humility. Many men of his age or station would never consent to such lessons of a maester to avoid embarrassment or perceived weakness. Let's say Randall Tarly couldn't read. Can we imagine him going to a maester and asking for help if it helped him serve his duty? No, there's no way his ego and machismo would allow that. But Davos does, because ultimately it will help Stannis, and that's what he cares about. The passage opens with Davos revealing the weight and expectations of his class, downgrading his confidence as Hand, again making that recruitment process all the more impressive in my eyes, and setting up Maester Pylos as a very kind and capable teacher. Good teachers are absolutely in short supply in Westeros, so Davos definitely lucks out in this respect. The said conversation with Pylos allows George to get some beloved history notes in, which will now particularly stand out to anyone who's read Fire and Blood, but it also boosts a crucial point that applies to handship and almost every other position of importance across Restoros. Your birth really shouldn't be a qualifier, either for or against. Both in this conversation and the one with Salador, Davos is basically arguing he is an example of the Peter Principle, which is definitely rife across the Seven Kingdoms, but thankfully, Pylos is able to semi-persuade Davos that this is not the case, and more importantly gives him an avenue by which to make him feel more worthy of the role with his reading. His son Devon was not yet 12, yet he was well ahead of his father, and for Princess Shireen and Edric Storm, reading seemed as natural as breathing. When it came to books, Davos was more a child than any of them, yet he persisted. He was the king's hand now, and a king's hand should read. Again, this would be impossible for many men of Westeros to get on board with if it was just a secret meeting between Davos and Pylos. The fact that he's struggling through in front of children, his own son, a princess and a king's son included, would exclude, I'm going to say 95% of men, but Davos is humble, hard-working, and focused on the end goal of helping Stannis, so learn he does. When Davos actually gets to the classroom, we get a bit of a reminder of Clash Davos, when he thinks upon Devon being young enough that he will only know a lordling's life, as opposed to Davos's elder, now deceased sons, something we spoke a lot about during Clash. And it's easy for the reader to forget that Devon is now the heir to the Rainwood, with his older brothers dying. We get an update that Devon is good with the written word, as well as with the sword. He seems to be everything a father would want in a son, though we have to note he is also fully engaged in the religion that Davos is actively working against. And of course, looking at a son who is beginning to resemble his deceased siblings is a trial for Davos, reminding him of what he's lost, as well as making him worry for young Devon's future. Along with Devon, we also get an update on Edric and Shireen too. George is really hammering home that of all Robert's bastards, Edric clearly takes after his father the most, and is obviously invested in Robert's legacy as well, given his talk of the rebellion. For Shireen, we only get an update on her looks and her grayscale, but this whole passage smacks of the five-year gap if I'm honest. 
Edric, a young man who looks and fights like Robert, would certainly be interesting to see much nearer the age Robert was when he started warring. As for Devon, what would his plot have been? Would we have seen him perhaps become too invested in the law so that he ends up something closer to the to the TV character version of Mathos? Shireen is someone I very rarely see get brought up in five-year discussions. What would have been her end goal? I suppose, if we ignore the lost five-year gap, it's possible Devon's devoutness goes too far even without it. He has been left in the care of Melisandre at Castle Black, remember? Is it possible that when Shireen is burnt as so many believe she will be, that Melisandre will force Devon to be part of it? Will he bring Shireen to the pyre, or even be made to light it? Yeah, that, that weighs heavy on the heart, but it will definitely make us look back on this scene very differently if it comes true. It'd be terrible to see Devon go that way, especially for Davos as well. As for the reading lesson itself, aside from again being endearing as Davos initially struggles but then gets better and better as he goes, it's a really novel way for George to reveal what it actually is Davos's reading. And what he's reading is really a pretty damn major beginning link between, huge, between two huge storylines that really had no connection at all before. As we said a few weeks ago, this would be similar to Lysa Tully suddenly getting involved in Old Town or something like that. We also get some Davos backstory, possibly the most we ever get about his life pre-Stannis, as we learn he has actually been above the wall. This is pretty major news as well. How many people do we know that have been above the wall that aren't part of the Night's Watch or Wildlings themselves? I'm struggling to name any, I can't remember off the top of my head. And it may well be a big hint of stories to come that Davos knows of the waters around Skagos and settlements where the Wildlings might gather. Settlements like Hardhome, for example. Hmm... I wonder if that'll fit into any theories. Yes, definitely some key setup here, I think. But back to the present. Davos is presented with a problem. Does he present this letter for Mace Draymond to the king, as his handly duties would require? Or does he keep quiet because he knows that Melisandre is going to make a play on this news and twist it to her advantage? So to put it another way, does Davos keep Stannis from his overall duty and the right thing to do to further his own cause, or allow Melisandre to gain a step? All the more creepy is how the certain clues about the others refuse to leave Davos's mind. Melisandre's warnings and what Stannis might have seen in the fires. The chapter began with Davos trying to resist making the connection between the power of leeches and the birth of a shadow baby. Ends with him resisting the possibility of a dark power coming from the north and it being in any way connected with his king. He even argues that the north doesn't currently come under Stannis' jurisdiction, which flies in the face of the discussion they had earlier about Stannis' duty to being to everyone in Westeros. As Davos says, the whole idea is troubling and it seems as if he'd rather sweep it under the rug than deal with such a problem in the same way Stannis wants a distraction from the Edric decision. Yet we as re-readers know it will soon be revealed, instead of sweeping it away, Davos is going to use the knowledge in ways we couldn't have yet guessed. And that is our first chapter out of the way. That's our last kind of inner connected chapter to the south for today. Now we're going to head north, north, north for battle, battle, battle. Yes, let's go to one of my favourites, John Seven. Here we come to a complete change of pace, as we come to our first organised battle in, in quite a while actually, yet this is also a completely different kind of battle to what we might have been used to in the south. There's no lining up of opponents, no fanfare and horns and standard bearers, there's no glory here. This is the hodgepodge remainders of the Night's Watch using whatever wits they have to defend a castle that has no right being defended from this direction. And even if it did, they are not the garrison, they are not the warriors, but they are what's left. It's a very no chance, no choice type of thing here. It's a setup we've seen many times across many different stories, the plucky outnumbered coming together to pull off the underdog victory. What is this, if not a fantasy version, of Home Alone? I personally love hearing the logistics of how the Night's Watch mounts this defence, the smarts that go into it, the little tricks. I eat that stuff up. That's to say nothing of the individual bravery of men thrust into this position by the fates. But this is also George, so we don't get to tie up the sticky bandits at the end with a coy smile on our faces. People fall, on both sides, and that plucky underdog story is stained with George's realism. Aside from the practical, there are huge themes at play here. 
After spending half a book waging an internal war about wildlings versus watchmen, John is now forced to actually act out for his chosen side. It proves who he is definitively, but that doesn't make the action any easier, especially if what he finds at the end of the battle, but that we will return to later. Let's begin with the opening quote. They woke to the smoke of Molestown burning. So we waste no time with this one. Instantly, we know the wildlings are near, and combined with John being up on a tower, that battle will soon be joined. It's very interesting, because we've really not seen a battle in the north at all. Winterfell was a bit of a trick slaughter, and the fist was absolutely a slaughter. And more interestingly, this is the first time we've been present for an assault on a castle. And again, I'm not counting Fionn's surprise raid on Winterfell here, it's not the same thing. But then Castle Black is also not a proper castle, and neither the remaining watchmen nor the wildlings are proper armies, so this is all completely new ground, very new and exciting for us. As John fairly notes, this defence, such as it is, is because of him. Whatever happens next, he did his duty. Everything with Corrin, with leaving Egret, it was all worth it because he was able to warn his friends and at least allow their possible death to come with honour, rather than the red slaughter he previously predicted. It's nice for John to be showing some pride in his achievements. Next quote here. Atop the King's Tower, Jon Snow leaned on the padded crutch that Maester Aemon had given him and watched the grey plume rise. As I mentioned on Twitter, and people seem to enjoy, it's quite the specific tower for Jon to be stood on, the King's Tower. Hmm. Let us also not forget that this Jon, the one who risked his life to come and warn his people, and has now roused their defences, even if his particular role is not so specifically heroic as we'd see in the show, although I'd argue every single person here is a hero in his own right, this Jon is now a king, even if he doesn't know it. Technically speaking, and according to the precise timeline of A Song of Ice and Fire that you can find on westros.org, this was actually true for John's last chapter as well. But narratively speaking, and for the reader, this is the first time we see John after both being named as heir of Winterfell and after Rob's fall. Incidentally, I've no idea if Rob's decree announces John as king in the north or merely heir to Winterfell. But it doesn't really matter at this exact moment. The point is, John just happens to be defending the realm that is now technically his in one way or the other, even if he's not doing it for those specific reasons. And of course, this makes even more sense as Bran is about to leave this realm for good, while Jon stays to defend it, but that again, that will come to later. I have need of every man who knows which end of the spear to stab into the wildlings. The pointy end. Jon had told his little sister something like that once, he remembered. So like we say, it's not the cinematic hero version because Jon is still pretty messed up and can barely walk. But also from this passage, we find out quickly that Donald Noy is leading the defence, and it was Maester Aemon who came up with the idea of using scarecrows, the first of those home alone logistics that we like to nerd out about. So essentially, Aemon and Donal are a way better version than the Lewin-Roderick pairing that defended Winterfell last book. On top of that, we also find that Jon has been paired with two different versions of the State of the Night's Watch. The Elder, and possibly past his prime in Death Dick Follard, and the New in Satin, who makes his first appearance. So this is a pretty nice portrait of the Watch in Change, as the Old in Death Dick will die in a moment, while the Young will survive and become part of the new leadership as Jon Squire, with that relationship clearly beginning its forging here, especially with the admirable performance that Satin puts in. I also like the note of Death Dick being calmer and resolute in his preparation by just getting on with cleaning his crossbow, while John and Satin, they're not veterans, they're all nerves, even if John hides it slightly better. Another quote here. Grig the Goat, Quart, Big Boyle, and the rest will be coming as well. And Egret. The wildlings had never been his friends. He had not allowed them to be his friends, but her. He remembered the grotto best of all. The look of her naked in the torchlight. The taste of her mouth when it opened under his. Egret, stay away. Go south and raid. Go hide in one of those round towers you like so well. You'll find nothing here but death. Already, John is focusing on what this battle is going to personally mean to him. He's almost taking stock of his success record whilst among the wildlings. He won in that he was able to resist forming emotional bonds to any of the men, but had a huge loss in falling for Egret. And not for the first time, the memory of their perfect cave adventure surfaces. 
not the first or last time. It's that little bubble that the real world stole away from them. As we see, John is desperate for her to just stay away, to not present him with the same choice he had to make before. He chose his side, he's sticking with it now. Did you know that 600 years ago, the commanders at Snowgate and the Night Fort went to war against each other, and when the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him. The Stark and Winterfell had to take a hand, and both their heads. John takes a moment here to recall his Uncle Benjamin, explaining some of the larger political accord Castle Black and the Night's Watch in general has with the rest of Westeros. It's agreement to be something separate and excluded from the general playing of the game. Benjamin tries to explain why it's not so stupid to have defences to the south, even though we kind of know it really is. But that argument aside, I pick this quote out specifically because it's going to come up in our next chapter of Bran, as well as having a reference to a Lord Commander being murdered by his own men, which we've not only just seen with Dior Mormont, but re-readers will know will soon come again, so keep that in your minds, we'll be referring back to this later. From there we get some further lowdown on the preparations for battle, and definitely some great material on how good of a commander Donald Noy is, not just in his voice and his command of the men, but having the wits to realise what needs to be prioritised and what doesn't, which is a really underrated skill and leadership. In this case, the more homely aspects of Castle Black, such as the Common Hall, or the stables have been abandoned in favour of what actually matters, access to the wall. Here's a quote. We'll empty the armoury and move what stores we can to the top of the wall, and make our stand around the gate. So Castle Black had a wall of sorts at last, a crescent-shaped barricade ten feet high made of stores, casks of nails and barrels of salt mutton, crates, bales of black broadcloth, stacked logs, sawn timbers, fire-hardened stakes, and sacks and sacks of grain. The crude rampart enclosed the two things most worth defending, the gate to the north and the foot of the great wooden switchback stair that clawed and climbed its way up the face of the wall like a drunken thunderbolt, supported by wooden beams as thick as tree chunks driven deep into the ice. I remember on my first couple of reads I had a real hard time picturing this makeshift wall, maybe because of the show's influence, I don't know, but for whatever reason it comes to me very easily now, and it is supreme thinking from Don Noy. He's highlighted what the main objectives of the Wildlings should be and given them top defensive priority. Not only that, but by moving the armory stores and the majority of the people onto the wall, it provides a bottleneck for them to concentrate upon, while allowing those on the towers like John to do the same. It's a fort within a castle. It's very les miserables of them. John also gives a rundown of the specific type of brothers left to defend the wall. And it's not exactly a pick of the litter type scenario, even with the backing of the people of moles down. Although I do like John's later thoughts about them being the ones to break, given all we've heard multiple times about discipline being the Night's Watch's greatest strength against wildlings, who obviously have no such discipline. But back to the garrison itself, like I said, there's very no chance, no choice theme going on here. They are the Night's Watch, so they'll do their duty to the last. This is what they are here for. Whilst reading through this rundown section, two little hints I've never realised before really jumped out to me about the fate of the switchback stair. Firstly, John think about Rast. It says he was raking dry leaves into piles under the stairs just now, but every so often he stopped long enough to give John a nasty look. And then later, a command from Donald Noy, stack the lard under the stairs. Yes, there, behind the planks. So again, it's just incredible to keep finding these little clues everywhere. It's the little nuggets you just dig up every time you reread. And this is the exact kind of detail and logistics that so many of us love George for. We're going to see that lard and those dry leaves come back again in a little bit. George raises the tension by making us wait, just the same as John and the others have to. We obviously know the battle's coming, but we can squeeze in a few more hurried heartbeats first, and it allows for some time to establish the foundations for John's new place within Castle Black. He's already mentioned that a few shoot in dirty looks as a turncloak, but George focuses in more on the bigger brother role that John plays with some of the new crop. He answers Satin's questions, he advises him to eat for strength, all with Satin actually being older, and he makes sure that Owen the Oath, another newbie to the readers, knows what he's doing and is feeling okay. 
This state of affairs isn't really going to change as John goes forward. There'll be those that always believe in the Turncloak, and those who don't. It shouldn't be lost on us that most of the haters belong to the ones who have been at the wall the longest, while John continually makes friends with the younger crop, and we'll see the ramifications of that come the end of Dance. Owen also kicks off the line of thinking about kings coming to save the day. We already know the North is in tatters and unlikely to lend a hand, but first-time readers likely have no idea that Stannis will be the only king to come and answer the call and provide true duty to the realm. It's another great sequencing link of having this chapter next to Dowis's when the possibility first arises. And after seeing this desperate effort by the remnant of the Night's Watch, it really does lend to Stannis' favour when we see him answer that call. Just the urgency in the normally calm Mace to Aemon's messages is enough to get our blood pumping here. From there, we get something similar to what we always see in any military or battle film or book, when we have the roundup of how everyone is preparing in the calm before the storm. It's a final humanisation of our defenders, a last beat of tension as George squeezes in some sublime writing of the night sky, and a final chance for John to muse on the differences and similarities of the wildlings, and specifically Egret, as he looks upon the stars they shared once before. But then, battle comes. Like with the Red Wedding, I had to stop here and just read right on through, because I find this battle particularly exhilarating, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were the same on your reread. As the battle begins, we get more of John the leader, as he advises and reassures Satin. Clearly, John has grown while away, and he is not the new recruit he once was. But what I find more interesting in these opening paragraphs is how this is unlike any battle we've seen before, like I mentioned earlier. Here's a quote. There were dark shapes slipping around the armoury, backs against the stone, but he could not see them well enough to waste an arrow. But when he glimpsed three shadows detach themselves from the old stables fifty yards away, he stepped up to a crenel, raised his bow and drew. They were running, so he led them, waiting, waiting. Like we mentioned earlier on, this is not a line them up and then clash them together type of affair. We don't even have all the wildlings trying to break a single wall or door like back in the Blackwater. These are little groups of wildlings sneaking in amongst towers in the shadows, like thieves and murderers as John calls them. It's an entirely different ball game, and it's so exciting to read through, I love it. I know Aziz got to this next one, but I'm going to include it again because I, I just like how I came up with this. He heard the deep thrum of Death Dick's crossbow to his left, and sat in a moment later. I got one, the boy cried hoarsely. I got one in the chest. Get another, John called. Jon Snow is Han Solo, confirmed. Sorry, I just got to get that in there. The intensity goes up rather quickly as John switches from seeking targets to merely having to choose them as the wildlings swarm into Castle Black with their numbers. Remember, they do not have John anymore, they've got no clue about the layout of the castle or what they need to prioritise, so it is advantage Night's Watch at this early point. While the wildlings seek around, trying to figure out what to kill or burn, the individual towers of Castle Black, as well as those on the stair, can begin to bleed the strength of the wildlings one by one. Ironically, it's not so different from how Moat Kalen would be defended, especially in terms of the towers, which, again, ironically, is the entrance to the true north, and this is the exit, so it's a nice little mirror there. Another unique part of this battle is being in the mind of an archer. John has never been particularly associated with the bow, but he more than proves himself in this short section. As far as POVs go, only Fionn is really an archer, and he never got a chance to show it off to us once he gained a POV chapter. There's been some links to Aya possibly gaining that skill, but that might be a remnant of the five-year gap now. Either way, it's something new for George to explore, and another new angle for us to look at a battle in. As things progress, John begins to make some personal links with the attackers. He recognises Big Boyle after he narrowly misses him, then begins hoping for a shot at Stir because that's a wildling he can truly hate, suggesting that there's at least some guilt about Big Boyle being hit in the leg, even though that arrow came from Mully. Then, of course, comes the biggest recognition of all, with Egret. But before that, we have our first tragedy. John! Death Dick yelled in his thick voice. The armoury! They were on the roof, he saw. One had a torch. Dick hopped up on the Kremlin for a better shot, jerked his crossbow to his shoulder, and sent a crawl thrumming towards the torch man. He missed. The archer below him didn't. Farewell, Death Dick. 
Of course, the cruelty of this is there is probably the warning shout to John that highlighted Dick to Egret, if indeed it was her who took the kill shot. Of major importance is John seeing her, recognising her, and yet being unable to fire. He simply can't cross that line, just as he couldn't with the old man that she killed. He knows what it means, know it could result in more death Dick Follards, but he can't, and his frustration at such is obvious. The dance has moved on, he thought. As John notes in this next paragraph, the time for sneaking is done. Now there's wall horns and fire and smoke, Wildlings have poured into Castle Black, and their numbers and superior skill in arms are starting to show. Multiple buildings are being set alight, so this is a period of physical change for Castle Black as well as in its personnel, and even some of the towers are now being fought over. Luckily, John knows that means it's time for a shift in priorities. Bleeding them and maybe scaring a few off isn't going to work anymore. Now they must prioritise the makeshift wall and specifically target the new unit the Wildlings have introduced, their most deadly, the Fens. These bigger, stronger, better equipped wildlings are now going full force against the makeshift wall, which at least gives John and Saturn an easy time with it in terms of picking them off. But then it's all high drama when John goes to reload his arrows. Here's another quote. He hadn't taken more than three steps before the trap slammed open three feet in front of him. Bloody hell. I never even heard the door break. There was no time to think or plan or shout for help. John dropped his bow, reached over his shoulder, ripped Longcore from its sheath, and buried the blade in the middle of the first head to pop out of the tower. Well, yeah, see, this has me going on my fourth or fifth reread, so imagine reading this for the first time. It comes out of nowhere, it's incredibly high danger, and John has to react. Injured leg be damned. Now Longclaw is his hand, far more natural than a bow ever was. And we see the darker side of the Home Alone stuff, when John and Satin pour boiling oil down upon the attackers, making a sight so gruesome Satin wants to retch. But John is the leader here, he knows they have to prioritise, and thus leads Satin back to the north side to protect the makeshift wall. Is another quote. They had only been gone for the parapets for a few moments, but everything below had changed. Again, high drama. George gets the carnage and urgency of this across brilliantly. The aggressiveness and vigour of the wildlings is overwhelming both the makeshift wall and the men defending it. John goes through many names of the night's watchmen he noted earlier as they die. Goodbye, Rast. And then things go from bad to worse with this next quote. They're breaking, Satin said. No, said John. They're broken. It happened quickly. One mole fled and then another and suddenly all the villagers were throwing down their weapons and abandoning the barricade. The brothers were too few to hold alone. Like I mentioned earlier, there's a deep irony in the Night's Watch being the ones to break in front of wildlings. Of course, the moles aren't soldiers. There was next to no chance they would ever hold the makeshift wall. Some crows try, but John sees yet more of them die. Along with the realisation, the most important part of Castle Black in this circumstance has been lost. The wildlings now hold the gate. That is the thing they have come for. That is why Mance sent them in the first place. Yet, the battle still rages and enters its final distinct section. John watches both the moles and the crows either run or die on the switchback stair, thinking back on Eddard Stark advising how running means certain defeat. A red rout, John calls it, as more and more die. It seems as if everything that can go wrong for the Night's Watch has. But then George pulls the switcheroo and gives us what I think is one of his very best battle plans in the series. Kudos to both him and Donald Noy for thinking it up. It begins with John spotting Sturt, the one he's been wanting to spot this whole time. The one he can hate and use to get his own blood up and then the fire arrows start flying. Just like they did with Naya's earlier chapter. Lots of fire arrows in this book. Those notes we picked out earlier come back to play as John, Satin and everyone else still on our tower begin firing at the bottom of the switchback stair at all those dry leaves and lard. The fire racing up the, from the bottom would be bad enough, but this is a two-part plan, as Donald Noy lights the oil-soaked stair from above. Castle Black might be easy to stroll into, but what Donald Noy has turned it into is an open palm that, once you walk into the middle of it, crushes you in its fist. It must be a horrible realisation, clicking that the fire is both above and below, and there is literally no way out. If these weren't fens, we might even have some sympathy for them. John describes multiple of their number dying in different ways, but then comes through with this true sword strike. All John had to do was watch. 
Twenty-odd fens were still huddled together between the fires when the ice cracked from the heat and the whole lower third of the stair broke off, along with several tons of ice. That was the last that John so saw of Stir, the Magnar Fen. The wall defends itself, he thought. It sure does, John, but not without you brave, loyal crows there to lend a hand. But in all seriousness, there is some wonderful linked writing from George there. As relieving as this victory might be, John wastes no time in establishing a new priority and trying to convince himself that Egret might still be alive. No doubt, he wants to find her before any of his brothers get a chance, and we don't have to wait long for a result. He found Egret sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. The arrow was black, John saw, but it was fletched with white duck feathers. Not mine, he told himself. Not one of mine. But he felt as if it were. So we come to the end of this chapter and this battle. John does not reserve time for celebrations or even calculating loss. Instead, he and Egret focus in on their relationship and the tentpoles they've been through. First is the idea of proper castles, once a clear sign of the division between the two, and at least one dream of Egret's being fulfilled before her end. But then it's that cave again, the cave they once dreamed of never leaving, where they could be safe from the pressures of the outside world and the divisions that led them here to Egret's death. In one way, it is a relief for John. Egret is not cursing his name as she dies, she's not angry for his betrayal, and she shares his desire for that one perfect moment they left behind. And of course, she leaves him with the mantra he will adopt for the rest of his days. We'll go back to that cave, he said. You're not going to die, Egret, you're not. Oh, Egret cupped his cheek with her hand. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she sighed, dying. While witnessing battles is cool and was a reader, what we cannot do is ignore the huge emotional fallout this has for Jon, on top of his time with the Wildlings and the blows of news he's received since he got back to the wall. This changes Jon. He is a different person afterward. Even if we remove Egret from the equation, battle does that to a person, and a teenage boy at that, and this is all entirely different from anything Jon has had to face so far. Yes, he had to duel against Corrin, and didn't exactly have a fun time of it above the wall, but this is different entirely. Loss is nothing new to John, Ned, Bran and Rickon supposedly, Gior, soon to be Rob, but as devastating as those are, they were remote, he wasn't present for them. Seeing Egret's body, knowing he had a part in her demise, however directly or indirectly, that's tough, it's real tough. There are more trials to come after this, clearly, but we really do see a different John after this particular loss, one that forms a major part of his identity going forward. He becomes more jaded, he's that little bit wilder, and he absolutely carries the burden of Egret's death with him. Remember, young John swore he would never love, so he could avoid fathering a bastard. On top of that was his night watch oaths, yet love he did, because of this specific woman, and that amazing moment of his life in the cave of her now seems so far back, but now she's gone. John was always a moody teen, but again, this is different, this isn't just grumpy teen stuff, this is true emotional trauma, and as we say, it thrusts him into the jaded man he will become. As we'll come to talk about in the next chapter, it may be of importance for his return from death. This is obviously a discussion for a much later time, but I'm firmly in the camp of Jon Snow coming back a much changed man, a more animalistic and emotional sort, and I think a lot of his anger and aggression are going to be traceable back to this moment. He'll be angry at the choices he was forced to make by the world, and perhaps by his oaths especially. He'll be angry at the fact that they couldn't stay in that cave, and he'll be angry that Egret had to die and he had to lose in a war neither of them started. Combined with the fact he's going to be pretty pissed with the Night's Watch anyway, for, you know, the stabbing, I don't think it's going to be pretty when he wakes up. But again, there'll be more of this chat in a moment in Bran's chapter. So let's give this one its due first. So let's give this one its due first. Is this my favourite John chapter at the wall? Is this my favourite John chapter overall? That rhymes. I need a refresh on the dance chapters, but you know what? It might just be. The battle in itself is absolutely amazing. I don't know if you could tell by how fast I was talking. It's completely unique among those we see in Westeros, and who doesn't love the story of an underdog? 
What is this, if not an early 90s sports movie? Or again, Home Alone. I adore seeing Donald Noy in command. I adore John's leadership with Satin. And the plan of the switchback stare is just brilliant. That all laid over the emotional foundation of John's worries and debating and turmoil over his two-way betrayal, finally having a physical result. Superb. Absolutely superb chapter. Let's close there for John 7. Okay, last week we had to take quite an early halftime break because of how things shook out, but this time we're dead in the middle, right between two chapters. And as it happens, we have two shout-outs this week. The first, yet again, is to Davos Fingers' first song of madness. I know, shout them out several times already, but you know what? It's deserved. But I bring it up today because today is actually the final of a song of madness. I'm recording this here on Monday, so a good number of you might already know the result. But yes, final day between Daenerys Targaryen, and I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure Brienne of Tarth will be the other opponent. So number one, what a matchup, but let's discuss that in a moment. Let's give our thanks, our gratitude again, to Matt and Scad of Davos Fingers, other faces alumni, for the setting up, the running of this tournament, the dealing with fans, both the good ones and not the not so good ones, the voters and everything else. We are so lucky that they've done this in this time of all times. It's been, I don't know, a month and change of every day providing them content, providing distraction, some enjoyment, some discussion, some really good discussion. People coming out left, right and centre with passionate, well-informed arguments about certain characters and with some funny criteria as well. I like to think a few of mine have been nice. You seem to like when uh, lovely Princess Zelda, our wonderful puppy, made a choice. I think it was for Daenerys. I know I've brought this up on multiple halftime shoutouts now. Will this be the last? No, it won't. I'll probably do another one about the final result next week. And either way, again, I just want you to stop listening to this podcast. And I want you to go and thank the boys for their contributions, for their efforts, because it's wonderful. It's a really big thing for the fandom, for everyone. And they don't get the recognition they deserve. They get a lot of recognition, and it's never enough. So go and add to it, please. I know a lot of you are voters and are commenters on the polls. You have been through a song of madness. It's been a lot of fun, like I say. And hey, let's just celebrate, because... It's a great final, what a fantastic matchup. Brienne of Tarth versus Daenerys Targaryen. Two amazing women, very different, very individual women who completely changed this world, both on the large scale in Daenerys and the small scale for Brienne. And that's not to decry what Brienne gets up to, it's incredibly important. I'm just saying they cover all bases. Now, I'm not going to take you through who I'm voting for, because I'll be putting that on Twitter later. But again, I want to highlight how lucky we are for this final. We really cannot lose. That's the way I'm looking at it. Whoever wins, we as a fandom win. You can't say, Daenerys Targaryen won, we, we've lost out here. Brienne of Tarth won, we've lost out here. Either one is a superb victory for us as a fandom, as readers, because they are two brilliant, brilliant characters. What I will mention is something I tweeted last night when it became apparent the final would be Daenerys and Brienne. And it seemed to be pretty popular, so I'm going to just kind of repeat it here for you. I like the fact that there's these two in the final because I think these two could really do with meeting each other. I mean, that would be an amazing moment for both Daenerys and Brienne for different reasons. I think it'd be most important for, da for Daenerys because her storyline, her setting is like 98% male. She meets so, so many men very few women and absolutely almost zero women in positions of power or in control of her own lives. She has Eri and Jiqui, but they are you know, servants, subordinates to her. She has Masande, but she's a child. And aside from that, who else does she really meet? Like Quaif? Okay, who knows what she's up to? And uh, Galaza Galer, who, okay, but different, not really. Someone Daenerys can relate to. So imagine her actually meeting Brienne. Brienne causes a stir enough in Westeros for women meeting her. You've seen it in Catelyn, you've seen it in others of like 
well, a, a woman can do this. Imagine what that means for Daenerys, who seemed kind of nothing good for women in her time. So now she meets this towering, powerful knight who can defend herself, defend others, and does everything for the right reasons. That'd be huge for Daenerys. That'd be such a boost to her femininity to her as a person to her world it'd just be a great addition i think and you can flip it right around brienne's been forced to go from boss to boss obviously renly died catelyn's kind of corrupted into stoneheart and yes she likes jamie but jamie is also a lannister so she's had real problems with she does the right thing but it doesn't it doesn't always trickle upwards if you if you get what i mean the up above are always not as noble as she is. So then she gets to meet Daenerys, someone pure who is doing the right thing, who is changing the world for better, who's changed countless lives for the better, completely changed everything. And it's very similar to Barristan. He goes over and finds a queen worth defending, worth serving. It'd be much the same for Brienne. She's had to wander around, she's had all these problems, and then she finally gets to see someone who she could believe in, a noble who is doing something similar to her in just doing the right thing. Like I said on Twitter, protecting the little guy, keeping to your oaths, doing the right thing. These two just get it. And again, it's in kind of popular, so I'm gonna repeat it. Is there another pairing you can think of who had who would have a more perfect blend of ability blended with morality? I can't. There's no perfect there's no better blend of ability and morality in the series. So here's my hope one day that they do get to meet and team up. But either way, thank you again, Davos Fingers, for giving us this final. And for all the voters as well. Thank you all for getting involved. I've really enjoyed it. I know you have. Here's to a great final. Look forward to the result. Now, second shout out today goes to something very specific for today's episode, hence why I bring it up. I'm sure all of you are already aware of the work of Joe Magician. He's writer for Watchers on the Wall. He appears on Mace the Monthly. And he has his own YouTube channel with a lot a lot of videos and you can really do a deep dive on go down the rabbit hole about the show about the book series big theories analyses all that kind of stuff very very popular like i said i'm sure you already know the reason i bring this up is because uh going on 18 months ago towards the end of 2018 Joe magician did a particular stream that lines up directly with what we're talking about today he talked about the nightfall and he had on with him Bookshelf Stud, also of Mace Monthly, and our recent guest, San Rixian. Again, I'm sure you're already aware, but how these streams work, Sam actually talked about when she was on for uh, Sporkle Spectacular, is the guys will be discussing something, Sam will get involved as well, but she also draws live, she also does an art piece live as the guys stream this live video. So if you get a chance, download it and listen to a podcast, it's great as well, but also go to YouTube because you can see Sammy's excellent skill on show while the guys are talking and are discussing these theories. And they focused on this particular video, which of course we'll be linking on Twitter in the episode description, about the Nightfall and their many theories, specifically what will happen to the Nightfall in the future. And they focused then a lot about the Night's Watch and what John could be doing with the Nightfall when he comes back from death and how all these things link in together. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's worth a listen. And I'm going to be referring to a lot of it in a moment when we get to the Nightfall chapter, because when I was doing my own reread of Storm of Swords last year, got to the Nightfall chapter, I had to tweet about it because it was so good. And Joe Magician pointed this link out to me. When I listened to it then, I listened again now. And a lot of the themes, they really tie in to this specific brand chapter. And you know, I was made, able to make a few more between the surrounding chapters we've got today as well. So, so I just want to give that particular video a shout. Joe Magician as well. He's a great follower on Twitter if you don't already. Very knowledgeable, very funny. Knows his stuff. As does Bookshelf Stud and as does Sun Rixian. You, you'd be well advised if I say so myself to go and involve yourself with them. Give them a follow. Subscribe on YouTube. Watch the videos. There's always, always good stuff coming from the three of them and individually as well. Let's not forget 
Sam Rickson's new podcast that she mentioned on Sport for Spectacular. Please don't forget about that. So that's our shout out for today. You'll see how they get involved at the end of this chapter when we sign to do a roundup. So that's German Magician. Find them there on that Twitter handle. Find them on YouTube, Bookshelf Stud and Sam Rickson. They're all getting a shout out today. Thank you for German Magician last year for pointing out your video to me. It was a lot of fun then. It was a lot of fun now. I'm glad to be able to incorporate it in today's episode. So that's today's halftime show. Let's get back on it now with Brand 4, the Night Fork chapter. And just like that, we're on a final chapter. This is Brand's last chapter in A Storm of Swords. How quickly did that come around? Now, okay, yes, Catelyn 7 is her last chapter, but that's hardly fair. She died. She doesn't get any more chapters, so shame on you for reminding me. Bran, we hardly knew ye. I've made it clear I'm not the biggest fan of Bran chapters overall. I'd have a real hard time remembering any of his dance chapters off the top of my head, aside from the obvious. But I will say that Storm Bran is my favourite Bran by far. Queen's Crown, high drama, the Night of the Laughing Tree is a wonderful way of presenting such a beautiful backstory. But the Night Fort, this chapter, is something else entirely. It's a creepy horror show of weirdness, where our very confidence about the makeup of this world we're in can really be questioned. And I think as these might have got to this note, but like I say, I did a personal read-through of this chapter last year and it really, really stuck out to me. So I think I would probably have to say this is my favourite brand chapter overall. So back to back maybe for John and Bran here for the start boys. It's just so much to enjoy about the actual night for itself. It's the first castle on the wall. How cool is that? I think we likely all just assume that was Castle Black, but this is the place the first repellers of the Long Night said, okay, here's where we're going to guard humanity against whatever's out there. Plus, there's all these stories about the Night's King, the Sentinels, and that's without mentioning the talking gate at the end. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting excited here, but how can this chapter not blow your mind? And that's all looking to the past. Like I said, there's plenty to discuss on the future also, but that'll come at the end of the chapter. Plus, even though Bran's ending here is a clear outlier, we have another seven chapters until the final Davos chapter, and then 16 until Daenerys ushers in the ending of most arcs of her sixth and final chapter, it does make sense to complete Bran's storm arc here. This is his leaving of the realm of his birth, the great crossing that is a huge sign of destiny purely for its unlikelihood that it happens at all. There's also a sense of irony in that, in that Bran is no longer the prince that Jojen and Mira know him to be, but he's a king, kind of. Like we said in John's chapter, John is technically a king. Or he might just be Lord of Winterfell, it's unclear. But perhaps the old gods say, no, it's not up to you, Rob. Bran is actually king, or lord, or whatever. It's confusing. Either way, note that Bran does not tell Jojen or Mira of his dream, because if he did, they'd almost certainly start calling him king. As well as the fact that at the same chapter, Bran becomes king slash lord, he leaves the north. So far, forever. He's not to know, of course, but still. Let's talk about this dream. Here's the first quote of the chapter. The dream he'd had, the dream Summer had had. No, I mustn't think about that dream. He had not even told the reeds, though Mira at least seemed to sense that something was wrong. If he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it, and then it wouldn't have happened, and Rob and Greywind would still be... Hmm. So first things first, last week I had a Nymeria dream that was all doom and gloom, even if she couldn't recall the details. I couldn't remember if Bran had a similar dream around the same time, but said it would be telling if he did. And turns out he did. So there you go, I did remember, subconsciously. Unfortunately for him, it seems Bran definitely does remember all the details and knows exactly what Summer felt. Whether that's because he's actually in close proximity to Summer, whereas Aya isn't to Nymeria, or just because his powers and connection are stronger and more refined than Aya's, we don't know. But what's clear is the Diable's connection is as strong in matters such as these. Which leads me to this question. Will they have similar dreams about Jon Snow's death at the end of Dance? Or does it require the wolf to die as well? I do seem to remember them feeling something about Lady's death, but I'd have to go back and look. But that would fit if that was the case. And also confirm for us that Grey Wind truly is dead, if that turns out to be true. 
I don't believe there's any reference to such a dream in the Wind's Mercy chapter, but obviously we've got no idea about Bran at the moment. We've not seen him for a long time. Who knows what dreams he's having? So just keep an eye out for that in, uh, in early Winds, I suppose. Another quote here. Jojen gazed up at him with his dark green eyes. There's nothing here to hurt us, your grace. Bran wasn't so certain. George really doesn't waste time with the ghost slash horror stories vibe here. Before we even get a look at the Night Fort, Bran goes off and listing the tales about, about this creepy place. And there are just so many in this first paragraph, I count seven, from the Rat Cook down to Mad Axe. And though we know absolutely zilch about any of these just yet, and many or perhaps even all of them are made up old Nan stories, I think the atmosphere is pretty set. This is not a house of fun they're entering. Like John, Bran thinks back on the words of his Uncle Benjamin, who doesn't actually offer any knowledge at all. But in the wonderful mind of a child, non-confirmation of a story is as good as confirmation, which I love. From there we get taken on a short physical description of the place, and it's about a standard haunted house atmosphere as you could get. Not so much because of the fact it's abandoned or fallen into disrepair, it's the noises, it's the scratching and scrabbling of rats, the creaking and groans in the night. There's even a bunch of sharp, evil-looking trees to drag their branches across the windows, if there were any. And Summer doesn't like the smell. And what did we learn last week at the Red Wedding? Trust your direwolf. So the reader knows we are supposed to be very, very wary of this place, even if there is a nice weirwood in the middle. On top of that, it's not serving its purpose. The group came there to pass the wall, but there's no way through frustrating and confusing them all, but none more so than Bran, who has this to say. We should have found the King's Road and gone to Castle Black. We dare not, my prince, Jojen said. I've told you why. But there are wildlings. They killed some man and they wanted to kill John too. Jojen, there are a hundred of them. And this is important. Yes, obviously Bran wants to go to Castle Black because he wants to follow John and reunite with him after actually making sure he's still alive. But he also has the agenda of wanting to warn who he can about the wildlings, because protecting the North is just what the Starks do. They have always done. So to Bran, it's more intrinsic even than a second nature. But who cares about any of that? Someone was injured, that's what we learn next. Why did you not start the chapter with this most important of news, George? For Bran, it's another sharp lesson on the rules of warging, the type we'll have laid out for us in Faramir's prologue later on. Pain in the animal will send you right back to your own mind and not allow you to return for a little while. That's a pretty key point to learn, but again, who cares, we just want to know if Summer is okay. We have to wait for a paragraph about Bran waiting to see if the wildlings will leave them alone in this little flashback part, so the tension doubles in this passage. But eventually we find that yes, thank all the gods, Summer lives, and we need to give major due to MVP Mira for sorting out the arrow and patching up our wolfy friend with her superior herbology knowledge. Oh, and by the way, while we're talking of Mira, she just low-key ascends the wall by herself in this chapter. No biggie. Sure, she's got some stairs to help out, but they are stairs made of pure ice that haven't been maintained whatsoever in 200 years. So, you know, you can take your chances with those stairs if you wish. Honestly, Mira is the real deal. We're not in her head, but just imagine that rush when she gets to the top and sees the wide world beyond the wall. She does talk about it later, but we can't even imagine that kind of feeling. While Mira goes up, the boys go in, deciding to take a poke around this creepy castle. George and Bran keep up the atmosphere of this being a dark place, by Bran constantly dropping a line here and there such as, We might find something, Jojen insisted, or something might find us. Or... Jojen wanted to go poking around down there, but Hodor said Hodor to that, and Bran said, no, there were much worse things than rats down in the dark beneath the night fort. As much as these might be the result of Old Nan's stories, there's a real physical element as well. Hordes of rats can be pretty disgusting, and I certainly wouldn't be volunteering to go down into pitch black tunnels which you can easily get lost in. It's a symbiotic relationship. The physicality and noise of the castle provides a perfect backdrop for the stories, knowing the stories make the noises and dark seem that much more foreboding. Here's another quote from Bran. Twice as old as Castle Black, Bran said, remembering. It was the first castle on the wall, and the largest. Bran interrupts the tour for a brief history lesson. I'm not sure why this didn't jump out to me in my first few reads, but it absolutely did this time and last time. 
the first castle on the wall. It just blows my mind. That has to mean something. There has to, there has to be a specific purpose for that, whether it's just geographical or because they had superior knowledge about the others at the time. Did something specific happen here that this building was supposed to honour? Maybe. It just has to mean something important. And to me, this all but guarantees the Night Fort still has a role to play in this series. Again, we'll talk about that more later. It's also pretty fun to get a Jaehaerys and Alessane reference now that we know them so well from Fire and Blood. Maybe a Targaryen queen will restore it after getting rid of it. Mm, yeah, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. I still get real riled up about the Night Fort. Anyway, from there, Bran gets a bit sick of subtlety and opts to tell us just one of the stories outright. First up is the 79 Sentinels, which is one of my personal favourites. Definitely, using that particular method of execution would be in keeping with the extravagant deaths or sacrifices the North used to be really into, and there's themes we need to take note of for later. Most important is that the Night Fort is a site of betrayal for the Night's Watch and the punishment for such, and it's heavily related to the castle itself. Plus, there is a parent-child vibe with Lord Risewell and his son here. Just keep those in mind. After some more discovering that this castle is really, really old, along with some summer growling and hackle-raising just to keep us on our toes, Mira returns, and I would say is wistful and amazed as we guessed earlier. But that doesn't help them much, eventually leading to the next of Bran's stories, this one on the Night's King. Again, it seems to hit on multiple shades. There's a bit of craster in there of the sacrificing. There's a bit of Stark history being tied into this place. Heck, there's some very heavy connections to the others themselves of the binding of others to the wheels and the giving of souls. Although I will say, I know a lot of people often connect Stannis with the Night's King, and for good reason. I find the connection of giving your soul along with your seed reminiscent of Melisandre and the creation of the Shadow Baby. Melisandre to have red eyes to oppose the Night Queen's blue, but who can say? Clearly, there's a lot here we just aren't meant to know yet. Either way, the whole thing is used to resume the creepiness of their staying there, as Bran notes that night is Night King's time, and that they are going to be sleeping there tonight, now that no better option has been found. Bran combines that with his unease at sleeping in the kitchens, and we can hardly blame him. Most of us wouldn't want to be there either, according to his description. All of it just plays into the creepy, eerie setting of the Night Fort, but that's before considering the massive well. The Night Fort is unsettling enough. Now you have to sleep next to a huge hole in the floor that makes everything sound ten times worse, and seems like it could be the perfect entrance for any monsters that want to come get you. Although it does lead to a perfectly comic relief moment. With this. Maybe we shouldn't stay here, he said uneasily. By the well, asked Mira, or in the night fort? Yes, said Bran. Kudos, George. I like that one. From there, Bran takes us through the next three stories. This time about the rat cook. Possibly the easiest one for us to relate to the cunt story. With this quote from it. But he slew a guest beneath his roof. And that the gods cannot forgive. Given what we saw just a few mere chapters ago, this is pretty clear about how important guest right is within the souls of Northmen and others, and how large a crime it is that it made its way into common folklore and tales. Again, let's note the connection between parents and children in another one of these stories. It's going to come up again. It's as they try to sleep that Bran feels all the factors of the night fort come together. He hears all the noises, the leaves and scratching and scurrying. There's a moonlit night. All of them feed into his idea of the stories, combining together to keep him from true sleep and wake with an even bigger jolt when we get this one line. Then he heard the noise. George is a master of horror. He used to be a horror writer. He spent all the chapters building up the suspense. Now he's going to put it all to use. As we've seen throughout this novel, he's able to do that with a short, simple sentence, alone on a line, that puts us right in Bran's shoes and the eeriness of the situation right across. Especially given all these stories Bran has just been relating. We've already seen quite a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire. So our mind starts to wonder, could one of these stories be real, or some version of it at least? Even if we're not going the supernatural route, hearing a noise like this clearly means one thing. Danger. Suddenly, all the noises from before are coming closer and closer, and we can feel the literal dread rise. Here's a quote. There was wind, and blowing leaves as well. But this was something else. Footsteps. Someone was coming this way. Something was coming this way. 
Oddly, Bran uses the moment to relay. Oddly, Bran uses the moment to relay another quick couple of stories, perhaps as a way for George to stretch out this new concern over what might be coming. This time, Bran talks about Mad Axe and the thing that comes in the night, again sharing the theme of deadly things that can sneak up on you in the dark, as Bran is concerned with now. For me, Mad Axe makes me think of Rhyme and Frey. Both of them have an axe, both have beards, and I assume Rhyme's was pretty blood-soaked after killing Daisy and the others, and while it might be drops of blood that fall from his beard in this tale, it wasn't so long ago Catelyn Tully noticed soup and sweat dripping out of Ryman's back at the twins. Plus, the whole thing about Mad Axe is that you supposedly don't know when he's coming, and Catelyn certainly didn't know about Ryman, so there's a weird little connection there. In classic style, it is as Bran tries convincing himself that nothing is coming that the sound gets louder and louder. The danger gets more and more real. It's coming from that well, that deep, dark well big enough for any monster, the one Bran suspected all along. He was right the whole time, monsters are coming. He manages to recruit Mira, who instantly recognises the same danger as he and makes steps to protect them. Understandably, Bran wants to do the same thing. He wants protection for both him and his friends, but he can't provide that, not as himself and not when Summer isn't there, leaving him only one option and the true horror of this chapter. Here we go with this quote. Prepare yourselves. Summer was far away, but he slipped his skin and reached for Hodor. It was not like sliding into Summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot on your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat, and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathered his legs under him, his huge, strong legs, and rose. I'm standing. He took a step. I'm walking. Oh dear. So all the while, the little boy was telling stories about monsters, never realising that he was one of them. Okay, that is unfair on Bran, that's too far from me. He's not evil, he's just ignorant through no fault of his own. But the act, yes, that act is evil. It even reads like it here, long before we get to the Vramir chapter, which does make rereading this one all the harder. This is obviously a whole new level than what happened at Queen's Crown, where he almost entered by accident and only for a heartbeat. This is all the way in, forcing his way in, and being in utter control of another human being. It's very difficult to read or talk about. Again, Bran doesn't know, but this is an abomination of the highest order. Hang on to that thought. We've got a monster to deal with first. Another quote. But the thing that came in the night was screaming too, and thrashing wildly in the folds of Mira's net. Bran saw her spear dart out of the darkness to snap at it, and the thing staggered and fell, struggling with the net. The wailing was still coming from the well, even louder now. On the floor, the black thing flopped and fought, screeching, No, no, please, don't! The build-up is so strong, so striking, that Bran gets knocked right back into his own skull and then this great big wailing black thing comes out of the well like he said he would. Surely they're all doomed now, this is the stuff of nightmares. But no, it's actually Samuel Tarly caught on a net. He wasn't any monster beast, or even mad axe drenched in gore. Only a big fat man dressed in black wool, black fur, black leather and black mail. He's a black brother, said Bran. Mira, he's from the Night's Watch. Clearly, there's few people who look less like a monster than Sam, especially when he starts opening his mouth. Then Bran sees Gilly and the baby, and it becomes abundantly clear these are not monsters out to get them. Most importantly, Bran recognises the blacks, and his mind immediately goes to John because why wouldn't it? But it's actually Gilly who takes over the conversation, which is impressive for a girl who thinks these dilapidated kitchens are actually a huge castle, and gives us more information about cold hands, changing the mood from eerie to the downright magical. So what do we learn? Firstly, that his name is Cold Hands, or that's the name they've given him anyway. They are searching for the one. Always a classic in fantasy. He knew there were people inside the night fort. That's pretty damn impressive. And that most importantly, he cannot pass the wall because of the spells woven in. That's quite a lot to take in there. We now mostly assume he's in league with the Free Eyed Crow, making it ironic Bran instantly assumes he is the Free Eyed Crow, 
and note Jojen especially reacting to the fact he has a bunch of ravens with him. It also raises questions. What is it specifically he can't pass the wall for? Does that make him dead? And how did he know they were all there? Again, most of us now resort back to the three-eyed crow for answers. Then comes time for recognition, as Sam realises who Bran is, with Summer being the ultimate confirmation for both parties, when he gives Sam a lick. You may as well give him a halo then, considering the direwolf reactions we've seen lately. Even though Jojen gives one more attempt at keeping their identity secret, Bran gives up straight away, and allows the two of them to bond over their shared affection for Jon Snow. Sam agrees to keep their secret, even though at this moment he doesn't realise he's going to have to keep it from Jon too, and the emotional turmoil that will bring him later on. Out of all this, and again, mostly thanks to Summer, Bran and the others decide to go with Sam and visit the Black Gate. Down they go, walking down into a well like something from a Legend of Zelda game. And we end up with something that is really kind of unique in this story. We have magic dreams and potential spells with leeches and a shadow assassin that appears and disappears, but now we come upon something tangible and magical. A clearly ancient, powerful thing you can actually reach out and touch, and the way it's presented is, well, magical. The Black Gate, Sam had called it, but it wasn't black at all. It was white weirwood, and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight, so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself, not even Sam standing right before it. The door opened its eyes, they were white too, and blind. Who are you? the door asked, and the well whispered, Hoo, 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 hoo. I am the sword in the darkness, Samuel Tarly said. So we have a weirwood gate, so white and powerful that it's glowing, with an old ancient face, that talks and can apparently sa understand Sam's word and vow. We have a magical, glowing, talking door that will open with certain words by opening its mouth wide. Yeah, don't tell me we're not in a Zelda game right now. But as if that's not enough, we get this ending to the chapter. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. How can that do anything but blow your mind? A magical talking door that is also crying. This is completely unlike anything we've seen in all Aswath, and the mind burns of questions. Why is it crying? Were weirwoods commonly used for purposes like this? Were all the faces once sentient? Or as sentient as this one is, we don't know how sentient it is. Honestly, it just boggles the mind, and it's absolutely superb as endings go. Now, we still have a bunch to talk about in this chapter, this is not the end. Firstly, this insane chapter takes us on a real ride. There's such a build-up of all these night stories of monsters, as Bran periodically tells them throughout, we combine that with the spooky atmosphere and all the noises, and then an actual monster appears. But it turns out to be Sam just stuck in a net. Weren't we all silly to believe in magic and ghosts and stuff? Back to normal. But no. We finish with an intensely magical, eerie feeling in the passing of the Black Gate. It's a literal roller coaster in terms of where we are led. Up, down, and then super spiking up again at the end. Superb writing and structuring from George. The whole thing gives me a sense of reality just being on borrowed time. It's kind of like, yeah, for now you can keep your Sams and your cat-sized rats and noises that are really just leaves, but remember that we, the monsters, can come back at any time, and we will come back. The magic and the otherworldly stuff is always there, waiting, and the humans are merely allowed to pass at this time. Again, it makes me think about payoff. I think we have to return to the Night Fort, and some of these stories have to pay off. So, let's think a little bit about the Night Fort's future. Like I said earlier, I went back and looked at a Twitter conversation from when I read this last July because I remember a few people chiming in about how good of a chapter it is. Something I stated was that I hope the Night Fort has a place in the Endgame, and I'm now convinced more than ever it does. But Paul Quentin or Emmett of Nauticast fame, who I know you all know, came back with one of the best replies. He thinks that this will be where Stannis will burn Shireen, so that blew my mind, obviously, because so many of these Night Fort stories have that parent-child vibes that we pointed out, so it fits really well. And Emmett also pointed out that there are more than a few parallels to Stannis and the Night's King, so it double fits. 
So this is where I'm going to get into some of the Halloween stream stuff from Joe Magician and Bookshelf Stud and Sanrixian that we mentioned at halftime. So make sure you do go and watch that as well. It will help you out of this chapter here. I'm going to be paraphrasing and simplifying a lot of their ideas. They really do expand into all kinds of details. So again, I recommend listening. But the crux of the stream is about the idea of John coming back from death and not being the same person. He's going to be wilder. He might even be, for the sake of simplifying, a little bit evil. A lot of that talk is based on Bookshelf Stud's excellent essay, The Return of the White Wolf, which is all about who John comes back as. That links in pretty well with what we've seen today already, because I believe a key factor in that angry, focused Jon Snow that returns won't just be angry about his own murder, but will still be torn up about Egret, like we said in John's chapter. So again, close sequencing here from George. But anyway, the point is, the guys on the stream hypothesised that a reanimated, dark John might choose to rule at the Nightfall, he might choose that as his seat. That's an intriguing theory that I'll refer back to in a moment, but hearing that really clicked in my head. The majority of the stream is obviously geared towards Dance with Dragons and will set up for everything that happens to John in Dance and the dance version of the Night's Watch as it is, but it clicks here too. It's just great timing to introduce the Night Fork now, one chapter after we've seen John suffer the horrific loss and death that will go to form part of his personality. And if we want to extend that a little bit, it's, we're only a couple of chapters removed from the first part of the creation of Lady Stoneheart, whose whole existence, I think, is supposed to serve as a warning story that John won't come back from death the same as Catelyn did not. Lady Stoneheart is not Catelyn, not at all. Not just physically, but emotionally inside. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they referred to that on the stream as well. So that got me thinking. That would make huge dramatic sense with John and Catelyn being polar opposites and enemies in Winterfell and John's youth. So to eventually become mirror images of each other, that really fits. That would be quite tasty writing from George there. As we've seen with Lady Stoneheart, morality is a much changed thing. She's out for vengeance and she'll do anything to get it. The stream mentions that she is singular in focus about revenge, as Beric was about helping the Riverlands. So will John be the same in his aggression or retaliation to the Night's Watch? It's possible he skips over that and sticks to the obsession with rescuing Aya, but I doubt it. Either way, changed morality opens up an interesting argument. What can you do to other people once you know there's no other side? Catelyn has actually died and assumedly seen the same black and nothingness as Beric. So if there's no heaven and no hell, no payback either way for your actions, are you now free to be as horrible as you like because you know it doesn't matter? It's slightly different for John because we assume he isn't going to the darkness but instead will be renting room in Ghost's mind, which is also a large part of the idea of him coming back more wild and animalistic. But the argument is still there. I bring that all up yet again because of chapter sequencing. We've just had a Davos chapter before this combination of John and Bran and he brings a real vibe with him, a real The Good Place vibe. Yes, that's two Good Place mentions in one episode, you're welcome. Because that's essentially what this morality argument is, right? It's the argument we see on The Good Place. And like the show, Davos would argue that you shouldn't be good and kind to others because of rewards or fear of punishment. You should do it because it's the right and good and kind thing to do. I can absolutely see Davos saying that as he stands next to Kristen Bell. Yeah, Davos and Stannis, they're both on The Good Place now. I've just improved the show 500%. You're welcome. The guys on the stream went through a whole bunch more possibilities for the Nightfall in the future. I won't go in depth on all of them here because, because some of them are closer to dance in this chapter, but they include the idea that Offal Yarwick has improved and fortified the Night Fort because he and the other anti-John brothers will need somewhere to escape to, and that certainly makes dramatic sense because the Night Fort has housed betrayers of the Night's Watch in its past, as we said earlier. It could be the site of a war in the Watch as John comes seeking retribution. It slides in well with the idea that John will leave the Watch or secede in some way, again in keeping with the stories, and don't forget that Selyse Baratheon wants to head there. So will she actually arrive and then be turned out by Burn Marsh and left to die in the cold? Or will she actually get in the castle, allowing Stannis to come and burn Shireen or take his place as Night's King as Paul Quentin suggested? Who can say? They're all superb ideas. But again, I looked at it in terms of chapter sequencing, and it fits. The last three chapters have featured Stannis, Jon, and Bran. 
Who do we associate the note for and its future with the most? Stannis, John, and Bran. I just can't stop admiring George's structuring powers here. And I think Aziz might have gone to my note on the, some more sequencing about how the Nightfall is, according to most stories, the place where all the worst things happen in the North, where all the taboos are broken. So very close after we've seen all that happen in the South. So again, some more mirroring going on. Speaking of the taboos, the very worst things you can do, these abominations, if you will, let us not forget what Bran did for the first time in this chapter with Hodor. He purposely and willfully took Hodor's mind. According to Varamir's prologue, that's called an abomination. And again, I'm not saying we should blame Bran here, he is innocent, but the act is evil itself. So how fitting it happens here in this castle of all castles, the castle of the damned of ghosts and things that go bump in the night. Either way, this chapter is simply sublime. So many questions are raised, especially about the old days of the Watch and the nature of the Black Gate, the nature of magic and the song Fight and Fire full stop, and what an incredible way to end an arc it is. Like with Davos on the letter, we get two storylines converging, if only for a second, in Bran and Sam, another one we likely didn't see coming, even if it was a lot more likely in Stannis and Jon. It's a really effective way to forward Sam and Gilly's journey without using up a POV, and it is a superb goodbye to Bran's time in Westeros. If his future is supposed to be based on the magical and the past, what better way than to travel through a chapter like this to get there? So we have goodbye to Bran, and it's the longest gap we're going to have for POV, because we're not going to see him again until Dance. Well, I suppose that's not true. Theon's gap's going to be larger, isn't it? But we're a bit closer to Bran, so either way, see you later, Bran, and we'll move on now to our final chapter of the day. It's A Song of Madness finalist, Daenerys, for Daenerys 5. So we're going to finish today with a very different vibe indeed. Finally, we are completely removed from the stains of the Red Wedding. We are no longer in the cold north of dingy Dragonstone, and we are not dealing with the more magical elements of the story. Dragons, you know, accepted. We're back on the Conquest Trail, on Danny's glorious revolution of Slaver's Bay and the world in general. Yes, we've already had a battle in Jon's chapter, but this is something quite different. This is a campaign, a conquest, and Danny is in charge. But if we've already had chapters that are major, major moments in the lives of Jon and Bran, then Daenerys V is certainly not going to be left out. This chapter holds so many key moments that the fact Daenerys survives an assassination attempt is one of the most forgotten things about it. We finally arrive at Marine, the focus point for Daenerys' time as a true queen so far in the series, the one place she'll ever settle, literally, not figuratively, the place that has been such a conundrum for both her and for George. It's a really, really important for Daenerys, for the plot of Essos, and for the whole series once we have Daenerys, Barristan, Victorian, and Tyrion all there later on. And let's not forget Quentin as well. From my good friend Sporkle, I have learned that in terms of most frequently mentioned place names in the Song of Ice and Fire, Marine is sixth, and in fifth place is the term Westeros, which is cheating a bit. So really, Marine is the fifth most mentioned place in all of the Song of Ice and Fire after being introduced this late in the game. Pretty impressive. We cannot overstate its importance in the narrative, and it's something we'll be discussing a lot as we go forward. But that's not even the whole story of this chat. This is also where we finally have the reveal that most people, but not Daenerys herself, had already guessed. Aston Whitebeard as Barriss and Selmy. And as if that's not enough of a major moment, this is where Daenerys finally finds out about Jorah Mormont, her oldest and most trusted friend, betraying her. Again, absolutely huge, important chapter for Daenerys. So let's get to it. Here's the first quote. Marine was as large as Astapor and Yunkai combined. Her walls were higher than Yunkai's and in better repair, studded with bastions and anchored by great defensive towers at every angle. Behind them, huge against the sky, could be seen the top of the Great Pyramid, a monstrous thing 800 feet tall, with a towering bronze harpy at its top. We all know how progression works. It wouldn't be much of a hero's journey if Daenerys started out with the big dog and then had an easy time of it conquering everywhere else. Hence, our opening paragraph makes it known that Danny will have a harder time of it here than she had with either of the other two Slaver's Bay cities. The symbol of the Great Pyramid makes it clear, we're at the boss level, 
and we're not ready to know yet, but this is true, this is the ultimate test for Danny's conquest of Slaver's Bay. She won't continue after this. Is it a simple matter of victory meaning completion? No, that's the whole point of Marine to Daenerys, the discovery that conquering doesn't equal good ruling. Hello, Robert Baratheon. This is, so far, the endgame. She won't do any going around Slaver's Bay after Marine. Or at least, you know, we bloody hope not. We hope it's Westeros after this. She's not to know all that yet, of course, but Marine is instantly set up as the final stage of this grand conquest, for this part of the world, anyway. And again, like with John and Bran, George wastes no time and gets right into the action this chapter. Daenerys is camped outside the city, with Marine's hero riding back and forth asking for a challenger of her choosing. We'll come back to all the hero challenge stuff in a minute, another easily forgotten part of this chapter, but for now let's skip ahead a couple of paragraphs to learn about Danny's actual setup and what's happened since Yunkai, because it's very important for ascertaining her current mindset. We firstly learn that Daenerys now has around 80,000 people with her following the conquering of Yunkai, but only 20,000 of those are soldiers, so the problem she previously had of hordes of struggling civilians who need to be fed, so the problem she previously had of hordes of struggling civilians who need to be fed has only gotten worse, which coincides quite badly with the fact Marine has been smart enough to burn the fields and poison the wells, so we instantly learn this is a boss battle with a timer on it. Danny has to take Marine and quickly, or there are going to be major problems that a dragon simply cannot solve. That would be motivation alone for Daenerys, but we also quickly establish that not only are the Miranese forward-thinking in their removal of food, but they are mocking, they are cruel. Perhaps the cruelest of the cities Daenerys has yet to visit, which is saying something, as we are told of the slave children nailed to posts while still living and left to die. Here's the quote, if you can stomach it. Leading her van, Dario had given orders for the children to be taken down before Danny had to see them, but she had countermanded him as soon as she was told. I will see them, she said. I will see every one and count them and look upon their faces and I will remember. By the time they came to Marine sitting on the salt coast beside her river, the count stood at 163. I will have this city, Danny pledged to herself once more. Oh, it gives me chills. We've got Justice Daenerys coming. I love it. So firstly, clearly one of the most sickening and despicable things we ever see in the series. As well as Marine being set at a boss level in terms of difficulty, it's now also well established as, as boss level in terms of pure evil. And as we said, Daenerys was motivated before, but now this is something else. Now her purpose has become justice, not just logistics, and we know how Daenerys feels about that kind of thing. But back to Marine's hero. This is not something we've really seen before. The closest we have is our numerous trials by combat. For organised one-on-one duels for the honour of different parties, that's kind of new. We learn this man is named Osnak Zopar, and we get a bit of backstory for him that we don't really need to worry about too much. But in the process, we also meet Brown Ben Plum for the first time, and re-readers know his importance is only going to grow as we move along. At the same time, we get some Jorah versus Barristan arguing over the philosophy of duelling and honour. Their arguing isn't new, Daenerys is clearly sick of it, but it is good to set that tone for the much larger argument and reveal later on. The problem of the hero brings up two important points. First is the contempt and disrespect shown Daenerys's way when he starts pitting in her direction, an act soon followed by those inside the walls. Here's the quote. High on the walls of Marine, the jeers had grown louder, and now hundreds of the defenders were taking their lead from the hero, and pissing down through the ramparts to show their contempt for the besiegers. They are pissing on slaves to show how little they fear us. Danny isn't wrong, a large part of this is because the majority of the host are slaves, and I don't think it's a surprise, the Miranese roughly equate a slave's worth with going to the toilet. But I'm sure a large part of it is yet again because Daenerys is a young woman, and who in this world would deem her a worthy opponent, right? That's their thinking. It's the same kind of infuriating mistake men made back at Yunkai, when she dunked in their face and owned them all. But the lesson hasn't been earned. Let's also not forget, this gesture is Osnak's latest attempt in goading Daenerys into making a rash decision after he's just spending an hour doing such. Danny is a young woman after all, unlearned in the ways of war. Surely she can be easily manipulated? Hmm. Which leads me to the second, far more important point brought up by Osnak's Opal, Daenerys' incredible leadership skills as she chooses a champion. 
We've already seen plenty of her growth as a leader and a general back in the Yunkai chapter, where, where those skills were on full on display. And we can see that she's just going from strength to strength. She's just improving, improving. And this particular thread of Daenerys is really jumping out to me on this reread. Firstly, she is able to expertly balance the timing of not making a rash decision, but not waiting so long that her own people lose heart, as well as seeing that the insult of multiple pisses must be answered. But more than that, several key factors go into her decision. Let's break it down. Number one, she expertly attributes who she cannot risk without losing key factions of her allies. She cannot use her blood riders without losing the leaders and worth of her Kalasar, as well as her best scouts. She cannot send Dario for the same loss of control over the Stormcrows. She knows how to prioritise and keep this army together. Number two, she's able to select a champion that has maximum payoff and minimum risk by understanding the inner workings of Marine. Because of their intense relationship with the fighting pits and the already established fact that slaves are considered almost subhuman and absolutely the lowest of the low, this is because of their intense relationship with the fighting pits and the already established fact that slaves are considered almost subhuman and absolutely the lowest of the low. Therefore, a victory by Strong Bellwurst, her selected champion, will mean more than a victory by anyone else she can offer who still counts as a warrior. Ironically, sending out Barristan as an old man and merely a squire would also have a similar effect, but she's not to know. Whereas a defeat, whereas the defeat of Bellwurst would incur the least loss, she doesn't lose control of any faction, and she gives Osnak a marine the least satisfaction. I mean, the guy goes out there topless, what did you expect, right? And number three, often forgotten, Daenerys is also shrewd enough to see this as an opportunity to weigh the gold Illyria centre. How much is this Balwas really worth? Because so far, it doesn't look so good. He's not all that helpful. So this actually doubles up. She can ascertain how valuable Balwas is in himself and how much value Ilio sees in her. To see Danny having this kind of multifaceted consideration to multiple aspects of this decision, her political, militarial, don't know if that's a word, and leadershipal, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep going and making up words, and leadershipal mind is absolutely outstanding already. Don't let anyone ever tell you Daenerys got so far just because she had dragons. Not true. She is amazing in and of herself. Bellwas decides to play Marine at their own game in terms of the disrespect. When Elsnack charges, he merely dodges and waits. Dodges and waits. It's the ultimate, put your hand on the little kid's forehead and let him swing at you type move. Bellwas knows how to use Osnak's hubris against him, because Osnak wants the pretty victory, as Jorah calls it. Meaning when it's time to put points on the board, Bellwas delivers. And Daenerys can clearly see exactly what Ilio and Mephasis are centre. Here's the quote. They heard the charger scream as the blade bit into his legs and then the horse was falling, the hero tumbling from the saddle. A sudden silence swept along the brick parapets of Marine. Now it was Danny's people who were screaming and cheering. The sudden switch of cheering and mood from the two crowds really is reminiscent of our modern sports. They call it momentum, and it's clearly in Danny's favour right now. But wanting one more highlight for the Asozi version of Sports Center, Boas also goes one up in terms of toiletry disrespect after killing and looting Osnak and returning home a winner. With her people now in a good mood and the atmosphere in camp on a high, Daenerys now needs to find a way to keep that going with an actual victory in taking the city, again pointing out their need for the food inside. And the fact that Dario highlights the gemstones instead will provide many reasons for arguments against him in the future, I'm sure. Hence, a war council is convened to determine exactly how they can do that. And something jumped out to me this time about Marine's geography. I think as he's got to this, but this is another one I put on Twitter that uh, seemed popular, so I'll repeat it here. And I instantly uh, realised my mistake because it means I'm going to have to say the name of the river that goes by Marine. Marine stood on a jut of sand and stone where the slow brown Skahazadan, maybe, flowed into Slaver's Bay. The city's north wall ran along the riverbank. It's west along the bay shore. Does that mean we might attack from the river or the sea? So my point of bringing this up is, uh, isn't that an exact mirror reflection? Or actually, mirror inversion, as someone pointed out on uh, Twitter, because I don't know my maths terms, of King's Landing, whose south wall runs along a riverbank and it's east along a bay shore. You've got to think that's intentional from George. Perhaps to show how Marine will also eat itself with his own politics come dance, 
or perhaps because they are the two mirror points that will come to be huge markers in Daenerys' life. I like the latter, to be honest, that these are the two kind of warp points for her, maybe. What the council boils down to is that the Miranese have been super smart. Not only have they cut off food supplies, but the opportunity to build any siege weapons, and they know the water supply is in their favour as well. Bad timing to talk about sickness and disease, I know, so fair warning, but consider this quote, where I unfortunately have to pronounce that river name again. Marine shits into the Skahazadan, but draws its drinking water from deep wells. Already we've had reports of sickness in the camps, fever and brown leg, and three cases of the bloody flux. There'll be more if we remain. The slaves are weak from the march. Rereaders will obviously be thinking, this might be the start of a good many problems for Daenerys and the freedmen come dance, but we should also focus in on that last line. Because of course, it is Jorah Mormont who still thinks of those 60,000 odd people as a bunch of annoying slaves, and it ties in directly to what he says next. I say, let this city be. You cannot free every slave in the world, Khaleesi. Your war is in Westeros. This is a really critical discussion and decision on Danny's part. This is a question she's going to circle back to time and time again, time and time again during her time in Marine. It's going to be the foundation of a question about her nature as a person and ruler, right up to her conclusion in Dan, when she reverts back to the way of the dragon. Obviously, the decision is one that is going to form much consternation in Daenerys' life and within the fandom, because deep down, we all really wanted to go to rest. And the annoying thing is, Jorah is kind of right. Attacking Marines seems near impossible, and if they stay, they will starve or die of sickness. So other options are there. But it's not whether Jorah is right or wrong that we should be focusing on here, it's his reasoning. So Jorah, you say we have no food left. If I march west, how can I feed my freedmen? You can't. I am sorry, Khaleesi. They must feed themselves or starve. Many and more will die along the march, yes, that will be hard. But there is no way to save them. We need to put this scorched earth well behind us. It's just Jorah being Jorah, isn't it? We know how he feels about slaves from multiple points in the past. We know he can be callous and uncaring. And he still sees them as just not important. They're not really people to him. He's quite willing to let 60,000 people, a large number of them women and children, starve on a march because who cares? And let's not forget, he's also focusing on a lot of his own ambitions here. Here's another quote. If I let Marine's old brick walls defeat me so easily though, how will I ever take the great stone castles of Westeros? As Aegon did, Sir Jorah said, with fire. By the time we reach the Seven Kingdoms, your dragons will be grown, and we will have siege towers and trebuchets as well, all the things we lack here. There's no secret Jorah has anti-Westeros issues. A lot of his pain resides there for him, and this paragraph is quite telling about the blood he's willing to spill back in the Seven Kingdoms. But it also reminds us his ultimate goal was to get back home. Well, you know, if we ignore the winning Daenerys' heart thing. And he will note the getting back home thing later in the chapter, so it is important. If he has to sacrifice 60,000 to do it, well, they're just slaves, right? So it's a real shame he's on the war council of Daenerys Targaryen, the last person who would ever think in such a way. She is the Mesa, she's the mother. She is a good person and she will not abandon her people. They will just have to find another way. And Brown Ben Plum provides the sewers. Incidentally, before we move on, I very much enjoy the input of the Dothraki as claiming that people who hide behind stone walls are defeated, because of course that fits incredibly well with the narrative and motif of their culture. But these sewers, here's a quote about them. Once inside, it is a long foul climb in pitch black through a maze of brick where a man could lose himself forever. The filth is never lower than waist high and can rise over your head from the stains I saw on the walls. There's things down there too, biggest rats you ever saw, and worse things, nasty. So, aside from the whole waste issue, that's pretty similar to the Nightfall in a lot of ways. Brick mazes that are pitch dark and really big rats. Weird. Sequencing. Like, I'm obsessed with it. But obviously the point is, this way in sounds as abhorrent as you can imagine, and Ben Plum certainly sells us on this being an unbelievable horrific experience with his refusal to go back in for any amount of money. Again, Danny is smart enough to know that obedience from the Unsullied and Dothraki doesn't make them suited for the task, and we'll leave the sewers here for a little while as the council adjourns.
As it does so, there is a famous scene where Brown Ben Plum seems to get on with Viserion, and tells it is because he has some Targaryen blood in him. That's an important staple to get in from much further down the road, and interestingly, at the same time, Daenerys thinks of her former nephew Aegon, who supposedly died in the sack of King's Landing. Is it foreshadowing these two are mentioned together? Hmm, we shall see. We also get a quick paragraph about Dario Naharis, and how Daenerys' affections and desire for him have risen sharply. This is an important paragraph for framing Daenerys as a human and as a teenage woman. Of course, she has these urges and daydreams, but tragically, she cannot separate those feelings from her position as queen and ruler. She is trapped in that role and denied the freedom to love and live and experiment and have that sense of discovery that all teenagers share. She is not free to merely take Dara into her bed because she wants to, because she knows there are other factors at play. To do so would mean consequences throughout her camp, jealousy from Jorah, accusations of favouritism from her other officers, and what does it all mean for her dragons? These type of questions are not only going to swell once she takes Marine and can no longer resist Dario, and rereaders know the kind of problems and deliberations Danny will face because of it. But again, it's an important note for her chapter. She's also self-aware enough to realise she's got a type. So far anyway. And it's nice to note that she not only goes for the dangerous, exhilarating type, but for someone who makes her laugh. Because Danny deserves to laugh. And again, rereaders know this is going to repeat when Quentin arrives, just not in the way that he wants. When Danny takes a ride through her camp and along the seafront, we get several different emotions and notices. She's angry at the fat cats and marine. She's impressed by the unsullied. She's worshipped by the freedmen. And then, completely out of nowhere, we get horrible, horrible Miro making a return and seeking revenge. And we also get to see what, what Aston Whitebeard can really do. One quick slash and he was on his knees, blood running down his face. Miro wiped his sword on his breeches. Who's next? I am. Aston Whitebeard leapt from his horse and stood over her, the salt wind riffling through her snowy hair, both hands on his tall hardwood staff. So firstly, respect for the brave, unnamed freedman who stepped up first, but let's just look at the cinematics of the old man standing over his queen, wind ruffling his hair and armed with only a staff. We all know what comes next. Barry completely owns Miro from start to finish, showing off the amazing skill we've only heard about or seen the quickest of glimpses of for the last three books. The legends are all true about Sir Barristan the Bold, it would seem. Here he is, easily handling someone half his age, breaking his leg before smashing his jaw and sending him into the sea to let the freedman finish the job. It's a pretty damn amazing sequence. Of course, being Barry, a healthy dose of shame comes with the victory, as he laments that Mira ever got that close. And you can kind of see uh, there might be some foreshadowing here in that, in that the freedmen don't completely represent happiness for Daenerys. Danger and problems can come from that source as well. But either way, the assassination attempt is done, and we return to Danny's tent for the juiciest Jorah versus Barry ever. So Jorah gave the old man a long look. A squire with a stick slow Mira of Bravos. Is that the way of it? A stick, Danny confirmed, but no longer a squire. So Jorah, it's my wish that Aston be knighted. No. The loud refusal was surprise enough. Stranger still, it came from both men at once. So Jorah drew his sword. The titan's bastard was a nasty piece of work, and good at killing. Who are you, old man? A better knight than you, sir, Aston said coldly. Here we go. You can just feel how long Barry has been waiting to say that to Jorah, and what relief it must be to be honest with this lesser, this truly false knight he considers Jorah to be. Consider how polar opposite they are. Jorah's disgraced, he broke the law, he ran from justice. He would dare to presume upon Danny's person. He's everything a man like Barristan would consider to be unworthy of knighthood. And now we finally see the gloves come off. Barristan dances some more with Lady Shame as he reveals his slightly sly tactic of technically telling no lies but withholding truths. Understandably, it's not much of a distinction for Daenerys, who is already incredibly worried about betrayals. So Jorah flushed red. Miro shaved his beard, but you grew one, didn't you? No wonder you look so bloody familiar. You know him, Danny asked the exile knight, lost. Khaleesi, before you kneel Sir Barristan Selmy, 
Lord Commander of the King's Guard, who betrayed your house to serve the usurper, Robert Baratheon. Yes, I think Jorah might have clicked what's going on here. He knows what it means that this is Barristan and Selmy in front of him. Hence, at the end of that quote there, he has to make sure Daenerys focuses on and remembers that Barristan betrayed her house and switched sides, because maybe if she's focusing on that, she's not going to focus so much on what Jorah did. It's not much of a hope, but that's all he can really do at this point. Emotions come from all three participants. Barristan starts with tears in his eyes as he recounts his years of shame and the knowledge of what he should have done so long ago, but he expertly takes Jorah down with him. First pointing out Jorah once fought for the North against the Crown, which at least excuses Barristan for also switching sides, but then laying down the kicker of Jorah Mormont having been a spy from the very beginning. He cannot mean, you are mistaken. Danny looked at Jorah Mormont. Tell him he's mistaken. There's no informer, so Jorah tell him. We crossed the Dothraki Sea together, and the Red Waste. Her heart fluttered like a bird in a trap. Tell him, Jorah, tell him how he got it wrong. The others take you, Selmy. So Jorah flung his longsword to the carpet. Khaleesi, it was only at the start, before I came to know you, before I came to love. Do not say that word, she backed away from him. How could you? Jorah has his emotion come out in frustration and scrabbling realisation, but it hurts to read Daenerys so much more. The way she tries to cling to her status quo, her own realisation that it really is true, the horror she feels at this, the very worst betrayal she could experience. Jorah is her rock, the one who's been there from the beginning, the one who saved her life and swore his own to hers. He was her saviour in more ways than one, her one true friend amongst all this, her one connection to Westeros as well. And he betrayed her, sold her out for his own gain. It really hurts to see how badly this affects Danny. Unsurprisingly, her heart turns to fury, and we brilliantly see it reflected in the dragons too. She is so hurt and confused, she doesn't know what to do with them. None of it makes any sense, and so we end with this. She could not say the words though. They betrayed me, but they saved me, but they lied. You go. My bear, my fierce strong bear, what will I do without him? And the old man, my brother's friend. You go. Go. Where? And then she knew. Yes, we said how horrific and terrible the idea of the sewers were, and now Daenerys has found a use for them. So ends another fantastic Daenerys chapter, even if it ends so poorly for her when everything else in this book had been going so well. I have to say, like I did earlier, I'm in love with her stormark on this reread, and I'm chomping at the bit for our next final Daenerys chapter. Overall, this entire junk has been brilliant, one of the best run of chapters we've ever had in any of the books. Thus is the state of the ending of Storm of Swords though. We've got plenty more to come, and we're returning next week with another five chapters. Let me read them for you here, because it's another biggie. That's right, it's purple wedding time. We have Tyrion Seven, the one with him and Jay again. Sansa Four, the beginning of the purple wedding. Well, there's gifts and everyone's yeah, at least semi-happy. Tyrion Eight, sorry Joffrey. Sansa Five, Sansa finally escapes King's Landing. And then Jamie Seven, and then Jamie Seven, where him and Cersei get together in the Sept. That'll be fun to read those quotes. So yes, that is next week, everybody. That will be part 13. Today was part 12 of 17. We're getting near the end. And what a chunk, like I say. I hope you've enjoyed these four chapters. I hope you will go and check out Joe Magician and Bookshelf Stud and San Rixian on that special stream. I hope you'll vote in today's A Storm of Madness final. More importantly, I hope you'll say thank you and well done to Scan and Matt for organising such. Check out all of History of Westeros' stuff. If you care to, give us a review, give us a rating, send a message. We'd love to hear from you. You might even want to check out our Patreon at Patreon slash Isle of Faces. I've been Sir Buckley, you have been my green folk, this has been a wonderful podcast, I look forward to the next one. Again, no Sporkle Spectacular this week, but plenty more in the pipeline for other faces, we've got some very special episodes, but we still want to hear from you. That's it, until next time, we'll see you then. Thanks guys.